one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Vice President Carter, I know if I could take roll. Commissioner Walker. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto. Present. Commissioner Yanez. Present. Commissioner Byrne is excused. Commissioner Yee is in route. Vice President Carter Overstone, you have a quorum. Also with us here tonight, we have Chief Scott from the San Francisco Police Department and Chief of Staff Sarah Hawkins from the Department of Police Accountability. Could you please call the first item, Sergeant? Line item one, weekly officer recognition certificate. Presentation of an officer who has gone above and beyond in the performance of their duties. Sergeant Joe Hall, star number 4315, Special Victims Unit. Good evening. Hi. Want to stand here? Okay. Good evening. I'd like to thank the police commission, the chief of police, and the public for taking the time to recognize the outstanding work that the San Francisco Police Department investigators do. And I'm especially glad to be here this evening to recognize one of my very own investigators, Sergeant Nick Joe Hall, for his exceptional job he does day in and day out but more specifically on a recent case that I will highlight this evening. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Alexa O'Brien. I'm the captain for the Investigation Bureau Special Victims Unit, and we're honoring Joe, Sergeant Joe Hall this week. A little bit about Sergeant Joe Hall. He's originally from London, England, but has been living in the U.S. since 2001. Before joining our police department in 2012, he worked for the Los Angeles Police Department for five years, like our chief. In 2018, he was promoted to sergeant and was put to work as an SVU investigator. Almost six years later, here we are, Sergeant Joe Hall still works for SVU as one of our more senior investigators. When Sergeant Joe Hall is not at work or busy working his cases or on call, he likes to enjoy time with his wife and two kids, a boy and a girl, who are sitting in the back with us tonight. I think the image many people have of domestic violence is a woman who has been physically beaten by her partner. But domestic violence and the work that goes into the Special Victims Unit encompasses a wide variety of crimes. It includes rape, sexual assault, robbery, aggravated assault, simple assaults committed by intimate partners, immediate family members, even strangers. And victims can be men, women, children, people with disabilities, or the elderly. That is why this recent case that Sergeant Joe Hall worked and was involved with struck such a chord with our entire unit. In the early morning hours of September 13th, 2023, Sergeant Joe Hall and his partner were told that there was a home invasion sexual assault of an elderly victim who was 95 years old. It occurred in the Ingleside District on Naples Street. Sergeant Joe Hall and his partner responded to the scene where the officers advised Sergeant Joe Hall that the suspect possibly gained entry from the rear of the home into the victim's unit by forcibly prying their way in. Sergeant Joe Hall learned that the victim was sleeping when she heard a noise that woke her up. The victim stated that an unknown male entered her unit, placed something over her head, and sexually assaulted her. The victim was severely injured and had significant trauma because of this assault. 
the victim was transported to SFGH where she received medical treatment and met with the SART person who is the sexual assault response team member and a sexual assault kit was collected and submitted to the crime lab. Sergeant Joe Hall spent hours writing search warrants for the property and the entire crime scene, which was processed for biological and latent prints. Sergeant Joe Hall also had the wherewithal to have the crime lab expedite this sexual assault kit in order to establish foreign DNA and, a and hopefully a possible CODIS hit. We're happy to say that less than two weeks later, our amazing SFPD crime lab notified us that there was a full foreign DNA profile obtained and they were going to run it through the CODIS system. A short time later, the crime lab confirmed there was a CODIS hit. Sergeant Joe Hall and his team obtained the suspect's identity who resulted in being a neighbor to the victim. Sergeant Joe Hull organized surveillance in order to take that suspect into custody, and shortly thereafter, they spotted him coming out of his home and took him into custody without any further incident. Sergeant Joe Hull and his team members conducted an interview of the suspect under Miranda, where he confessed to the assault and even admitted that he stole items from this victim's home. Thankfully, no one else was harmed by this assailant, and he remains in custody. Sergeant Joe Hall, your hard work and dedication is an example to everyone on our team. Thank you for being the very best at everything you do. Personally, it's a great relief for any leader to have a team member who manages himself the way Sergeant Joe Hall does. Your efforts are deeply, deeply appreciated. And I'd like to also just um, bring to the attention of the commission that it is um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So we really do appreciate um, highlighting this case for us. But Sergeant Joe Hall, we'd like to present you with this award on behalf of the commission and the police department for your service. Uh, Commission Chief, uh, just want to say a few words real quick. Um, I'm honored, and I thank you for your time in recognizing not just myself, but also our unit as well. Um, this was a great team effort from patrol that initially responded to the scene, to the crime scene investigators that processed it, and to the crime lab techs that produced the evidence that we needed to move this case forwards. Um, Support of my captain, our lieutenants, we had the resources that we needed. And I'm proud that it was actually our SVU team members, my peers, that were able to take this suspect into custody. And along with the assistance of my partner and my mentor, we were able to get that confession as well. So 24 seven, 365 days a year, we are always on call uh, to respond out to some of the most horrific violent incidences in the city. Uh, proud that we we're able to get justice for this victim and her family and San Francisco is a whole lot more safer for it. So, thank you. Uh, Sergeant, I just want to thank you so much for your service to the city. Uh, the facts of, of this particular case are obviously harrowing, and, and your actions were nothing short of heroic. So, thank you so much for that. Um, we're very lucky to have uh, people like you who react under these distressing circumstances and, and handle things with such professionalism both for the victims and the community. Um, 
I will, I will note that the police commission very recently updated its policy on evidence collection practices and uh, hadn't been updated, I think, in well over a decade. So we're hoping that that, uh, which now takes account for new DNA technology and, and other uh, technological advancements, uh, we're hoping that that will continue to give you and your team members the tools that you need going forward. Uh, Chief Scott. Thank, thank you, Vice President Overstone. Uh, Sergeant Joe Hall, thank you. Um, I don't want to repeat everything that's been said, but I just want to sincerely thank you and thank you to your family. You mentioned something about the rigors of working SVU, being on call all the time, and I know how difficult that can be. It's also difficult on your family and your kids. So I know your family is here. I want to say to them, thank you all for um, allowing him to do what he does. And you also very eloquently talked about teamwork. And that really speaks highly of you because none of us do this job alone. But for you to really uh, give, give thanks and praise to, to the team that works around you is very commendable as well. So thank you very much for everything that you do. Thank you, Chief. Uh, Commissioner Walker. Um, I, I would like to also congratulate you, Sergeant. Um, um, the work you do is so important to so many, and uh, the work of you, the, you your, your teamwork with the unit, um, the help of the crime lab, um, this is how we solve these issues, and it's really important. So thank you so much for your dedication, for being here, and thank you to the family, because we all know how it's a sacrifice, and we all are aware of that. So this award is for you, too. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you. I'll, I'll add my, my congratulations and also uh, to the family. Um, th thank you for the tremendous work that this unit does. I, uh, Commissioner Walker and I, were we attended the Denim Day event earlier this year where we got to meet a lot of the, uh, of the Special Victims Unit, and it's uh, a tremendous group of professionals that, that are doing great work. So thank you, and thank you very much, Captain. Sergeant, could you please take us to public comment? If any members of the public would like to make public comment regarding line item one, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item two, general public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda, but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the police commission. Under police commission rules of order during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public, but may provide a brief response. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in either of the following ways. Email the police commission at sapd.commission at sfgov.org, or written comments may be sent via U.S. Postal Service to the Public Safety Building located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 94158. If you would like to make public comment, please approach the podium. Go ahead. Go ahead. Good evening. My name is Michelle Lazineo, and I'm a 26-year civilian police department employee who works for a neighboring agency. I'm here tonight to talk to you about missing persons. I had two posters to help, but they were confiscated by the deputies at the front. I had a poster with six children that have autism and were reported missing in 2023 in other states. Five were nonverbal. All of them received media attention. All had an immediate extensive area search done by police and volunteers, yet all of them tragically were found dead within hours of disappearing. The other poster I had was a young man by the name of Knowledge Shepherd. He's only 13 and is a child of San Francisco. 
His mother reports he has severe autism and is nonverbal. He was reported missing to SFPD on September 15th. SFPD categorized him as at risk, but did not immediately share any advisory on their multiple social media platforms. They didn't publish a press release until three days later. The news reported that he was safely located on September 18th in an Alameda County medical facility. Since knowledge is nonverbal, he wasn't capable of calling his mother or telling anyone that he was missing and needed help to get back home. We will never really know whether anything bad happened to him during those three days he was missing, and this is unacceptable. SFPD has no public alerts policy. A public alerts policy provides guidelines for alerting the pu public to important information and soliciting public aid when appropriate. It includes social media posts, CHP alerts, and press releases. SFPD has posted public advisories, including multiple missing persons announcements on Nextdoor, Facebook, and Instagram for a 33-year-old tourist, a 69-year-old and 83-year-old at-risk adult, so why was there nothing for a 13-year-old severely autistic nonverbal child? SFPD has a media relations unit with eight employees, including a director of strategic communications, a social marketing and public relations representative, and five public information officers. But All right, just two minutes. Can I waive my time? I'm sorry, sorry, no. It's just two minutes per person. An email because their policy is very, very old from 1999 and needs to be immediately updated to save children's and other missing people's lives. Uh, good evening, commissioners. I was just going to uh, give my support for SFPD, <laughs> so I'm going to do this instead. Um, marketing and public relations representative and five public information officers, but absolutely nothing was shared with the public or media for three days to help bring Knowledge Shepherd home safely. Adopting a public alerts policy will ensure that every missing person receives the exposure and attention they deserve. SFPD Missing Persons Policy Departmental General Order 6.10 hasn't been updated since 1999 and is only three pages long. The only updated policy that I located, she located, is a two-page departmental bulletin 17-086 signed by the current Chief William Scott dated 5519. The Commission on Peace Officer Standards and Training updated their missing persons guidelines May 2021 pursuant to the Penal Code 13519.07. This manual includes the best standard practices and includes initial investigative steps. The Oakland Police Department had a similar situation in 2019. Their missing persons policy was 20 years old. I was, she was a volunteer on the Police Commission's Missing Persons Ad Hoc Committee and, and they drafted and approved a new policy in 2021. Their new policy is 12 pages long. If you check, you will see that they post every missing person bulletin on their social media platforms and most are quickly located. Updating these policies with the current best standard practices is critical, needs to be our priority, and will save lives. And I concur with this statement. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Good evening. I'm not here to talk about my son right now, but I will. But I just wanted to make a, I would still like to use the overhead. Um, I was just talking about the, um, the Sojourner trip I took last time, you know, we were talking about police violence and community violence. And we're just looking back on that trip where when we tried to go to school and we couldn't go to schools, we were being beaten. And I just wanted to bring up too, watched and I was telling you last time about the children being hurt. And I'm pretty sure some of you went on this trip too. And then what I saw about whites only, only the toilets, this is in the history books. And it doesn't make a difference whether it's community violence or police violence. It's all the same. It's still going on to this day. And I still say that we gotta look back in order to move forward. If we don't look back at our history, we cannot move forward about what's going on in, in, in our lives now with these with these homicides and with the police killings, with the community violence, if we don't look back. So I think that I would love to go back on this trip again to, to learn more. This is not in our history books. And we all need, most of you, and I'm pretty sure of you, some of you been here, that been to the trip. You need to go back. There were police officers crying that day. We all came together and, and comforted each other. That's what community, violent, community and the law enforcement coming together. That needs to happen. If we, if we don't see what happened back then, how can we move forward? How can we move forward? It changed me. It changed me what I can bring back to my healing circle and to mothers that are losing children. It's not just police community. Any members of the public have any information regarding the murder of Aubrey Abracasso, you can call the anonymous 24-7 tip line at 415-575-4444. Commissioners, uh, my name is Janelle Harris and I am a former Oakland Police Commissioner. Um, I am here to support um, Michelle, um, in regards to the missing persons um, policy, um, I also was a member of that ad hoc that helped write that, um, and we are very proud of that. So I would, say, I would ask that you just take a look at it. We did a really good job at working with many stakeholders in that. Um, here is a picture of Noah. that we just wanted you to see to give you a visual. Thank you. To give you a visual. And here is the poster that we, want, we were going to bring in, but it was too big. So we just want you to look and it's, you know, there's no, it's not by coincidence that all of these children are African American. So, um, you know, I just want to encourage you to just please look at the policies. Look at all of your policies, especially the ones when it comes to safety. Um, it's really, really important, and it does make a difference. We have some things in place in Oakland that have really, really made a difference. We find people very quickly, and it's all over on social media. 
So the public has been really helpful in finding um, some of the people that are at risk. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. For those who don't know me, my name is Jay Connor B. Ortega, and I am a co-president of Iconic D3. I want to take this time to thank all of our men and women in the San Francisco Police Department for doing the daily job that requires their lives on the line for the rest of us. The San Francisco Police Department, our officers, take so much abuse from elected officials, appointed officials, and leftist lunatics, and still get up each day and wear the badge. Now, I am a fierce advocate for our San Francisco Police Department because for too long, those in charge have put criminals over our cops and communities, and, and I've had enough of it. A lot of us who aren't victims of crimes take our officers for granted. And those who become victims of crime understand why we need a fully functioning San Francisco Police Department. San Franciscans of all backgrounds are the ones whose SFPD is here for to protect. Let this be a wake-up call that everyday San Franciscans are sick and tired of the anti-SFPD policies that come from this commission. We are awoken, we will push back, and you can expect us here at every meeting. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. I'd like to make a comment on the traffic data presented last meeting. It goes without saying, obviously, that death is sad, and specifically preventable death deserves analysis by relevant public agencies. But to make a decision on police deployment shifting away from the drug scene to traffic enforcement requires clarity on the data. The data showed 12 traffic fatalities over six months. Three were due to jaywalking, and two were attributed to other than driving, leaving only six to the behavior of the driver, meaning the police really could only have intervened with maximum six people over a six-month period. By the way, three out of those six were DUI, which also would have been tough for the police to do something about unless they came across them driving in a suspicious or erratic manner. Compare that with over two people a day dying on our streets from fentanyl overdoses. Commissioner Oberstone, speaking of his concern about the decrease in traffic citations, said, we now have eight officers and a sergeant full-time arresting drug users. Everyone told us it wouldn't go well and it isn't going well. I wonder if some of those officers could do traffic enforcement instead. Commissioner Oberstone further described the 12 deaths as high rates of death and carnage on our streets. To me, high rates of death and carnage more accurately describes the disgrace of 500 people dying already in 2023 at the hands of the very drug dealers this commission seems to want the SFPD to leave alone. So arguing to deploy more police to traffic enforcement to prevent at best six fatalities compared to stopping two people a day from dying from fentanyl seems like a gross dereliction of this commission's duty to public safety given current levels of SFPD staffing and resources. And as an aside, it is tiresome to hear the anti-law enforcement rhetoric arresting drug users when in reality the SFPD is arresting drug dealers. And there are also hundreds of former drug users in the recovery community who would disagree that their arrest which served as a wake-up call and set them on a path to recovery was something that for them, in the words of Commissioner Overstone, didn't go well. Thank you. Hello, good evening, Commissioners, Chief Scott, Director Henderson, Tracy McCray, I'm the President of the San Francisco Police Officers Association. 
two weeks ago when the commission was last here, we talked about that leak of information, of confidential information in the SF standard. During that time, and in the past two weeks, I haven't heard of anything being done about it. Now, a complaint came into DPA, you have that information, that information then sat on someone's desk, Commissioner Oberstone, and we have not had that case adjudicated yet. But somehow, it winds up on the front page of the SF standard. So, as the president of this union representing members who feel that their discipline process is now open for the world to see, I want to know who's going to fix that. Who's going to find out what happened, whether it was a leak or saying that the police department released that, you know, just because? Like, what is going on here? And you wonder why the trust between the officers I represent and the commission is so frayed because they're not feeling like they're going to get a fair outcome if we have stories on the front page. These are confidential records. So I want to know how you're going to fix it. I want to know how it's going to be your priority to make sure that, yes, when a discipline case comes before you, that it is confidential. You do take in consideration about what is going to happen with that case and not have it splashed all over the paper because that is unacceptable. Truly, it is unacceptable. So whenever you want to let me know what you want to do about it, you know where to find me. And also, ma'am, I can't wait to update that policy. 1999, I sit in all meeting confers as a president. That should be on our list to get done as soon as possible. And I would love for you to sit. Lieutenant McRae, could oh, I ask you? Yes. Could I ask you a question about your public comment? Um, so uh, it's not on the agenda. you, you know, we're, we're, we're said he could ask back. We're allowed to ask questions to public commenters. Uh, you, you, you wrote a longer letter today, setting out kind of more thoroughly what you just set forth just now, and in particular, you, um, you essentially accused me um, of being the leaker of this information. And I just wanted to ask you, this information being confidential information under state law. And I just wanted to ask you, are you aware that the Standard published an article this afternoon specifically debunking that claim that it was leaked information? That, that the Standard published an article saying they did not obtain the information through a leak and uh, they set forth in great detail exactly how they... Uh, how they got the information. Are, are you aware of that? No, actually, I've been a little busy with work. But again, I don't go on social media and then say it wasn't me, do my best Eddie Murphy. Oh, all right, I just, Eddie I Murphy just, I, I just wanted to you know, know if you were aware of that article clarifying so that there is no doubt in anyone's mind that this was not leaked information. So are you also aware that that theory that it was leaked was originally propounded by a right-wing blogger who's known for trading and disinformation. So are we getting to the politics here, I'm Commissioner? Just, Do you I, know he's a right-winger? I mean, are you a left-winger? I, I, I mean, are we getting into this tete-a-tete -tete right now? Just, or we could talk offline. I was, so do you want to get into it right now or you don't? I just wanted to know whether you knew whether the, the origin of this now totally debunked theory came from. That's all. That's your impression of it being debunked. So if you want to read news articles and you take that as the gospel and as fact-finding, that's on you. What I'm asking this commission to do is find out how that got into the paper, right? And you could say, yeah, it wasn't you. Okay, 
that's fine, but I want to know who was it, who did it, because that was not supposed to happen. And, and I completely agree we do need to find out who did it, but I did just want to ask you whether you knew now that the, the leak asked an answer that you next. threw out has now been has now been asked and answered next. Bust. That's all I have. Okay. Thank you, Lieutenant. I'd like to have this agendized. I'd like to have an investigation start. I mean, that's what I'd like. We need to know. It's confidential information. It got it got put out there somewhere. All right, if there's no public comment, Sergeant, could you take us to the next item? Line item three, consent calendar, receive and file, action. Police Commission report of disciplinary actions third quarter 2023 and DPA May, June, and July statistical reports. Motion to receive and file. Second. For any member of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item three, the consent calendar, please approach the podium. All right, seeing no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner and Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have four yeses. Line item five, Chief's report, discussion, weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. I'm sorry, line item four, adoption of minutes, action for the meetings of September 6th, 13th, and 20th, 2023. Second. Any members of the public would like to make public comment regarding line item four, please approach the podium. I see no public comment. Uh, on the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. And Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have four yeses. Line item five, Chief's report discussion. Weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Chief Scott. Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Uh, good evening, Vice President Carter Overstone, Commission, Executive Director Henderson, and the public. Going to uh, start off this week's report with just a general overview of crime, part one crime anyway, serious crime. Um, we are 5% below where we were this time last year, and overall part one crime, that is a difference of roughly 1,900 crimes fewer than this time last year. Uh, the breakdown between property and violent crime still is uh, pretty pronounced with a property crime actually down 5%, which is um, almost 2,000 crimes fewer, and our violent crime up 2%, which is about, 100 and, uh, about 100 crimes more than we had this time last year. Specific to violent crime, our homicides are even uh, with where they were this time last year, which is... Um, a bit of good news considering uh, we've been above where we were this time last year most of the year. Our homicide clearance rate is 75%. Uh, Actually, it's a little higher than that because we just made an arrest today of a homicide that occurred on August 29th in the Richmond District uh, with a liquor store clerk that was assaulted by uh, a robber. And um, I just want to also say this. I, I attended a community meeting in that district a week or two ago. 
and I know uh, the public was asking where we were on that investigation, and there were some, some questions and comments because we did get uh, information from the public uh, that's helpful. And I would encourage anybody that has any information with a homicide or any other unsolved crime in the city of San Francisco, please, please forward that information to us. You know, we see a lot of stuff on social media, but it's really helpful when um, we get information that can help us lead to the identity and ultimately the arrest of, of individuals and hopefully the prosecution. So I just want to thank the public for their interest in that case and, and uh, please keep the information coming. So with that, there were uh, no fatal shootings this week, no, no homicides this week. We had two non-fatal shootings causing injuries to two victims this week. Overall, uh, for the year, uh, another piece of slightly good news, we are down on our shootings. Uh, we've been up most of the year, so we're down just 1% on our non-fatal shootings year to date. Our homicides with firearms are also down by 4%. It's only a difference in one crime, but it's still a, a reduction, and we'll take it. Um, in terms of rec gun recoveries, we have recovered 823 firearms were seized this year. That's compared to 805 this time last year, so it's a slight increase. Our ghost guns, um, of, the, of the 823, 112 were ghost guns compared to 115 this time last year, slight decrease. A couple of um, incidents I would want to highlight. There were, and some of these were uh, good outcomes as far as arrests. Uh, assault on a sworn officer in a, and the suspect was in a suspected stolen vehicle. Uh, there was an arrest on this case. This was at Golden Gate and Hyde in the Tenderloin on September 27th at 1.38 in the morning. Tenderloin and CHP officers located a reported stolen vehicle at the location. While attempting to detain the suspect in marked vehicles, the suspect rammed the CHP vehicle, then attempted to ram the SS SFPD vehicle. The pursuit was initiated as the vehicle fled, and it terminated at the dead end of Van Ness and McDowell. The suspect was arrested, minor damage to the CHP, vehicle. Uh, thankfully, no other people, no people were, were hurt in this incident. Uh, that resulted in an arrest. There was a incident that happened at Shaw's Candy on West Portal Avenue on that same day, 927 and 1.42 p.m. This involved um, a suspect, basically, that assaulted um, an elderly um, worker in, in the Shaw's Candy store. When the officers arrived, uh, bystanders had detained the suspect, and we were, again, grateful to have the, the assistance of the, of the public on this case. Uh, officers from Terravel Station responded to the 100 block of West Portal Avenue regarding an assault in progress. The investigation determined that a male suspect had assaulted the victim without provocation and caused her to fall to the sidewalk. A coworker of the victim ran to the aid of the assaulted victim and was also assaulted by the suspect. As the suspect pushed the co-worker into her retail establishment. While inside the store, the suspect assaulted an additional victim, an elderly female customer, which caused her to fall to the ground. During the assault, a worker at a nearby business witnessed the victims being attacked and ran to their aid. The witness held the suspect to prevent him from further assaulting victims, but was also assaulted by the suspect which caused him to release his hold. Suspect fled from the store, but was followed by additional witnesses and bystanders who detained him. As the officers arrived, they observed the suspect being detained. Officers um, developed probable cause based on the investigation and arrested the 39-year-old 
suspect transported him to the San Francisco County Jail where he was booked for four counts of assault likely to produce great bodily injury and elder abuse. Uh, three victims were treated and released by the medics at scene and one victim was transported to the hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. Again, um, thank you to the members of the public who bravely intervene. I would just caution members of the public to please do that carefully and safely, but we definitely appreciate uh, people looking out for their neighbors and without them, um, the arrest would not have been as quick as it was. There was a assault and attempted murder at uh, the, on the 600 block of Powell on 928, September 28th at 3.48 p.m. Officers responded to a burglary call, which was then upgraded to a verbal dispute between the, victims, the victim and a neighbor. The victim advised that the neighbor broke into her apartment and trashed it. The suspect then confronted the victim inside her apartment and attacked the victim with a hammer. The, also, the subject also swung a knife toward the victim but did not make contact. The victim was treated at scene, officers arrived and arrested the suspect. Um, there were a couple of other very good arrests here but I, in the interest of time, I just wanna say that um, to the public, please keep the engagement and the information coming in. Our officers are uh, doing some good work out there, working with the public to try to hold people accountable when they commit crimes and we will continue to do that. As far as the other uh, issues for the week, um, we had one hit and run collision which resulted in a fatality. Uh, this one uh, was a high profile because there was a hit and run and then that victim was then hit by an oncoming cruise self-driving vehicle um, and transported to the hospital the victim was and later succumbed to her injuries. Um, the driver of the initial hit and run vehicle is still outstanding and this case is under investigation. So again, if you have any information about this case, 415-575-4444. Uh, there were no stunt driving weekends, uh, events this past weekend, and this week is Fleet Week. So we have a lot of, uh, of our armed forces personnel in the city, um, enjoying the city. Fleet Week is all about preparation though. So there's a lot of exercises between the public safety departments, the state and, and the Coast Guard and others during Fleet Week. And it's all about being prepared for big events when they occur and working together. So I wanna thank you, uh, thank the members of the armed services who are here in our city, uh, the Department of Emergency Management who really plays a huge role in coordinating Fleet Week. And we hope that people when they're out this weekend, be safe, be vigilant, if you see something, please report it. Um, and the Blue Angels, which is a huge attraction, will draw a lot of people this weekend. Uh, the last thing is uh, Senator Feinstein's services are tomorrow. Uh, she was uh, lying in state in City Hall today. The San Francisco Police Department, the San Francisco Sheriff's Office, the Fire Department, along with members of the Senator staff, all stood uh, in formation as her often was uh, carried into City Hall today. So again, we uh, will be deployed as far as the security for that service tomorrow. And we want to make sure as much as we can that the Senator uh, is given the appropriate send off with the respect and dignity that she deserves with the service that she has put into this city and this county and our nation. So um, that is it for my report. Chief, thank you for the report. Um, 
Just wanted to follow up on uh, our conversation and action on, on the preemptive use of spike strips. After the commission um, clarified what was always true, that, that officers are permitted to use spike strips preemptively, you noted that you might uh, issue additional guidance on that, and I just wanted to ask you if that guidance has been issued. It, uh, it has been issued. It was issued as promised. Uh, the commission meeting was on Wednesday. It was issued that Friday. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then um, I think I saw that Supervisor Melgar called a hearing on the state of the workplace for women at SFPD. Um, I don't know if that hearing is yet to be scheduled, but I would just ask that any, if there's a response letter to the, to the Board of Supervisors or any other kind of uh, documents or correspondence, if that could be shared with the commission. Uh, this is an issue that's also of interest to me. I think you remember, Chief, I, I invited the, um, the um, uh, Maureen McGough to come speak to the commission on how to increase uh, recruitment of women officers um, and would just love to be kept abreast of uh, whatever uh, correspondence there is between the department and the board. Um, last, I just wanted to, I try not to do this every week, but I want to check in on the state of our uh, push to arrest drug users um, and just wanted to check in if the staffing is the same and um, if, if you do have the updated arrest numbers. Uh, yes, the staffing is the same and I do actually have the arrest numbers. Uh, staffing is the same as it was uh, from the last police commission police and, commission meeting. And while you get the arrest numbers, this is just to make sure I have it right. The staffing is, if I recall, eight officers and a sergeant that do four 10-hour days, then another crew that does makes it a seven-day week, so fills in the other three days, doing I guess a total of 30 hours, and then there's a night crew in the tenderloin that spends some unspecified percentage of their time arresting drug users. Is that right? That is correct. And there are other, there are other resources that are working the Tenderloin. We have a team of officers, uh, I believe it's four, who spend the majority of their time uh, in, with fugitive recovery efforts, people with warrants. Most of those warrants are, are narcotics-related warrants, but not limited to that. Um, also, our narcotics unit spends the majority of their work uh, working these cases in the Tenderloin and Soma. Uh, those are our investigators that do the narcotics investigations. So um, those resources are pretty consistent, or those personnel are pretty consistent. And if we uh, need to surge resources, depending on um, what the issue of the day is, we also do that as well. And sorry, just to clarify, the narcotics unit, they're not only working on the drug users, they're, they're working on investigating drug dealers as well, right? Most, almost all of their work is drug dealers, the okay. narcotics unit. Great, okay. But it's all in Right, part, but I'm, I'm, for purposes effort. of my question, I'm just, right. want to just be able to tease out what, what we're expending on, on arresting drug users specifically. And let me, let me clarify then, okay. the one in eight that works the, the, pretty much the day shift, they work some swing type of hours, but pretty much the day shift. Their primary focus is the users. Um, the night one and eight, they do a combination, you know, because there's a lot going on at night. So they arrest some users, but a lot of their work is actually drug dealers and other things, other crimes. They've arrest robbery uh, suspects. They've arrest assault suspects. So 
just kind of depends on what's going on in, in the area that they're assigned to. And um, they're also occasionally officers when they're not assigned permanently, but um, we have details that come in when the one and eight are off in the daytime to work the assigned area that we're focused in. So that's not a permanent assignment, but we do do that as well. Great, thanks. And so j to be clear then, is there another one in eight crew that does the other three days of the week that the primary one in eight crew can't cover or no? Not permanently. That's Not permanent. where the, the other crew comes in, uh, depending on what's going on in the city to relieve, to fill that gap, but Understood. that's not a permanent assignment. Understood. Okay. Thank you. That's helpful. And then, and then do you have the arrest numbers uh, today? Yes, I do. Um, in terms of drug users since May 29th and the, the, these are for, um, health and safety code, 11350, 11550, 11377, and 11364. There have been 582 total arrests since, since May 29th. And of those, do we know how many have accepted services? I don't know. I know at least one has, but... Uh, well, last time there were actually two. The number was 467. Last I asked you, and two of the 467 had accepted services. Yeah, so some of these cases are being... Well, the people that have engaged with our service providers they don't at least one of the ones you mentioned it wasn't that they accept the service at the time of the arrest but case management follow-up I'm told that they did okay. finally accept services so but everybody is uh, offered okay thank you that's that's helpful and then I think was it August that we had the record all-time record for for fentanyl overdoses I'm not sure I okay, I think yeah. I think we may have tied our, our all-time record. I guess I'll just I'll ask you again. Do you think these resources, these substantial resources we're spending arresting drug users, could be better used elsewhere? For example, investigating and arresting drug dealers, or doing the kind of blocking and tackling policing that we're just not doing right now, like traffic enforcement and foot patrols. At, at what point do we say this investment? Um, has not been a success, and we have to now put the resources where they're actually going to improve people's lives. Well, I don't, let me, that was, I think, about three questions there, so I'll try to make sure I don't miss any. I don't believe that it's um, a fair statement to say that this is not working, because what, what we don't know is how many of those people who were arrested may have Overdose. What I do know is, with these efforts, and a lot, and most of this is is in the ten. Well, all of this is in the tenderloin. We've had 81 reversals. Actually, 139 reversals. No, 81 reversals of of um, people who were OD. And if those officers weren't out there engaging with this population of people, who can say whether those people will still be around? So I, I don't believe that that's a, a fair and accurate depiction of the situation to say it's not working. We don't, that number may be substantially higher if we weren't doing this. We don't know that. And it's hard to measure what you prevent. Um, the other part of this is 
in my professional opinion, you know, there's two sides to this market. There's the supply and there's the demand and then there's everything in between with all the people who are involved but aren't suppliers and aren't users, but they're involved in this, in this market. We have, to, we have to address all of it. And it, it, we're constantly and consistently looking for you know, better ways, uh, the engagement with our social services with this particular operation is really, I think, going very well in terms of the collaboration coordination. And we'll see where that leads. Uh, today is, is, is October the 4th. There's a service that's starting today called Tenderloin where officers and others will be able to actually call people and people who are um, on the streets using intoxicated if they're willing to go to services, some of those people will, will go. And this is a nonprofit that will pick them up and take them and take them to services. So that's, uh, uh, hopefully, will get us further down the road with people who are accepting help. The point that I'm trying to make without being too long-winded here is, I don't think it's a fair statement to say it's not working. Uh, what we do know is we've arrested over 500 people, or whatever number I just read, I think it's 500 or so people. And those people were interrupted from using drugs on the street or being highly intoxicated. Um, you, you walk around the city, so I'm sure you see the same things that we all see. Um, and I know you've gone on ride-alongs. I would invite you to go out there with us. I've been out there all hours of the night. Uh, and people are in bad shape. And there's nobody out there but the police to deal with this. Nobody. So when we engage and we arrest the person that's using you know, fentanyl, because most of this is fentanyl arrest, or somebody who can't get up off the sidewalk because they're so intoxicated, I don't think it's fair to say that that's a failure because the person didn't accept service. Because people are dying on the streets, and we have to engage with people. And again, I invite anybody who wants uh, to, to take a crack at this with a better idea to, to, to join us. All right, thanks, Chief. I I won't, I won't belabor it, but there are there is a better idea. It was, I think, published in 2021. The San Francisco Police Department, the DA's office, and other experts sat on a blue ribbon, ribbon panel commission, came up with eight recommendations for how to address a crisis like this. And um, we've just decided not to follow our own advice, I suppose. Um, I will, I will, you want to, you want to, if you want to respond, I, I was going to try to close it out, but if you want to respond, please, you can have the last word, okay? No, no, I, it's not about the last word. I, I just, you know, because I was here, I sat on in some of those discussions with the people that drafted that report, and I, I don't think that's an accurate statement that some of those things weren't uh, attempted to be put in place. Um, I don't think that document is the answer. I think there's some things in there that are good, but, I, but here's, here's my criticism of that document. Yeah, there's a couple of lines about the, 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 the role of the police department there, a couple of lines, and that's a problem. Because you know, for those people that say, you know, this is not a, a, a criminal justice issue, this is not a police issue, I think is a grave mistake. We have to work with all these other service providers, public health, uh, social service providers, and we all have a little bit of a stake in this, some more than others, but I've been critical of that since day one. You know, uh, work with us, not against us. And you know, if, if policing is not the answer, then let's try something else. 
But at, in the meantime, as I said, when I'm out there at 2 o'clock in the morning and our officers are out there at 2 o'clock in the morning, I have yet to see any of those folks who are listed in that paper out there. I have yet to see that. Okay. Except for the police department. The, the paper does outline a clear role for the department to play, in, including kind of clear consequences for people who, who sell drugs. Um, but thank you for that, Chief. Um, Commissioner Walker. Thank you. Thank you, Chief, for your report, and thank, your name thank the department for all the work that you're doing out there. Um, to this issue of um, your policies and your um, the, the current department commitment to the tenderloin, I, I want to commend what we're doing because I do think I agree with you. Um, I think it's working. I spend a lot of time in the tenderloin. I walk, I walk through South of Market and tenderloin all the time. Um, it is much better, especially those hot zones, the 7th and Mission. Um, I mean, it's, it's a moving target, and everything is connected. The users are right in there with the dealers, and, you know, it's, it's really clear to me that you need to sort of address everything all at once. Um, I will also point out that there's no other equivalent authority, and if we're going to wait around for people to willingly um, get into recovery from fentanyl, um, we'll be having the same conversation in 20 years with less people on the street because they've overdosed. So I appreciate the, the seriousness that you're giving the issue. I also was going to bring up the issue of the report on the, um, the department's lactation. It's specifically around lactation um, um, areas in some of the stations. And uh, I know I've been working with... Uh, Supervisor Melgar's office for the last few months working on recruiting women into the force. Um, our, our conversations have led us to really move forward some ideas around childcare close to the stations. This is another issue that's of real importance, not just to women, but to I think everyone in the department. So um, anything we can do to prioritize um, this, I think that there's money coming even from the governor's office to um, aim at recruiting folks into the department and certainly um, updating these lactation areas is really going to be important, especially around overtime that we're wanting people to do. So um, I want to support that. Um, and again, I've been in, in conversation with uh, Supervisor Melgar's office about this, so we will be working together closely, anything I can do to help. Thank, thank you, Commissioner. And I, I know that was one of uh, Vice President Overstone's questions, if I could just add. We are, if uh, Vice President, if you care, if you can agendize that, we can give an update on, on that. It, actually, I'm prepared tonight, but I know it hasn't been agendized, but we, we can give an update on where we are and, and would, would, would love to give an update because we do need to. She just did a hearing too. We do need to do some work. I don't know if this, the hearing has been scheduled yet, but. I I don't, I don't think it's been scheduled yet. I know she announced that she was going to. Yeah, she's, she's, she asked for it to be scheduled, specifically yeah. just an update like that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But we can update. I'm happy to update okay. the commission as well. Uh, Commissioner Yanez. <clears throat> thank you, Acting President Carter Oberstone. Thank you, Chief, uh, for your report. Um, I know correlation is not causation, but it is, you know, very clear that ever since we uh, initiated this uh, policing strategy, there's been an increase in overdose deaths in San Francisco, or, well, there's still an increase in overdose deaths 
And uh, there was a study that we all discussed that demonstrated that whenever these policing practices uh, are implemented across the nation, uh, there is this correlation. So I think it, you know, there's evidence to demonstrate that um, this isn't necessarily the most uh, effective strategy. Uh, so I'd like to ask, what is the outcome, the tangible kind of measure of uh, impact that we're looking for to be able to then uh, you know, redirect those resources. Is there a number? Is there a, I, I'm, you know, I'm not sure what, what we're looking for because we, we continue to, you know, pour resources into this approach and it, it's not leading to people getting treatment. And as far as I remember, you know, incarceration does not provide the necessary treatment for people to sustain uh, sobriety once they are released. So is there in those conversations with the people that are coordinating these efforts an outcome in mind? Yeah, there is. Um, the goal is for people to, to um, we're talking about the, the, the people with the users, people with substance addiction disorders. The goal is um, two things. Number one is, you know, accountability. There, there, accountability is an issue here, but the other thing is we, we all want people to get treatment. I mean, treatment is, is the answer. You know, where you get that treatment and how you get that treatment or whether uh, you know, there's, there's research on both sides of the discussion on whether, you know, compelling treatment has an impact or whether it doesn't. I'm not here to argue that one way or another, but what I'm here to say is one of the outcomes that we have to pay attention to is the people who have to live with this day in and day out. And I, I, we meet all the time with people that are the most impacted by this. And, and um, there is a lot of frustration when people have to deal with the open air drug use, the use, the, 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 the intoxication and the impacts of that. It, it's, it's really um, demoralizing to people who have to walk through that and step through that. Kids can't walk to school without having you know, escorts and things like that. Um, that is one of the things that we're trying to make better. And now that's not necessarily um, going to be cured overnight, but we have to change the behavior of it being okay to just do that in numbers that the last time I went out there at 2 o'clock in the morning, probably 250 people. You know, that's not okay. And whether the remedy is arrest or treatment or everything in the middle, we got to get to it somehow. But what we're trying to do is let people know that it's not okay. You know, we want you to get help. We don't have enough rumors in our jails to arrest all those folks, even if we wanted to. We don't have enough room. Um, so I think we got to do a little bit of it all. Has there been progress in uh, formalizing the relationships with those placement facilities? I know you mentioned an organization, not sure who they are, but um, are these, uh, you know, memorandums of understanding in place so that there are options uh, other than incarceration? Yeah, you, well, there are no MOUs with the police department, but that is an ongoing push to to have more opportunities for, for placement. Right. And there is some bed space in our city, and I know that bed space has increased. Uh, it impacts our hospitals. Uh, I was a, did a tour with the PES psychiatric emergency 
Services uh, ER doctor at General last week. This, this issue is one of the things that has our ER rooms overflowing. It's this issue. And when people are left out on the streets and, and they end up in the ER rooms, it just causes, I'm not a doctor, I don't pretend to be, I'm not saying, I just know what I saw and I know what I heard. So there's many reasons to address this issue and we don't want people to end up you know, in the ER room uh, when if we can get them in placement before it becomes that type of crisis. Um, the users, even when they are arrested, unless they have warrants, they're not getting significant jail time. Usually it's a matter of hours. Sometimes it's you know, more if, they, if it's sobering, uh, they're released. So, and that's part of our challenge. Well, that, right? that, is, that is a challenge. That's, that's a real challenge, but at, at least there's an opportunity for somebody to reach out to them and, and an opportunity for case management after the fact. Any uh, progress on uh, enacting the LEAD program, obtaining funding for it, or revisiting um, that strategy? It's a strategy that is, uh, has been talked about. Um, it, we haven't made any movement with a formal reintroduction of LEAD. You know, I, I am a proponent of LEAD. I think it has value. I think part of that, but even that, there's a law enforcement component to that when it's done the way it's designed. Yep. You know, people are given an option. You either go to treatment or, you know, the hammer is waiting on you and the hammer is, is incarceration. And, and that is one element that we're not necessarily uh, offering right now, right? When you have the option, I mean, treatment, especially harm reduction, that is actually the, the model, right? That if you have an opportunity to access treatment in lieu of incarceration, punishment, probation, parole, whatever the case may be, that those folks are then have the agency to self-motivate into treatment. And yet, that's not necessarily the strategy as I understand it It's that, that we're using. And, and I, I, I commend the department for, for being out there and, and sometimes reversing overdoses. I mean, I think that's a positive number, um, and that's something that helps balance out um, the, the challenge. But at the end of the day, I think it's been said before, that's not what our officers are necessarily uh, here to do, right? We're, we're, we're trying to improve our public safety outcomes. We've done a great job, I think, and it doesn't get uh, talked about enough that our uh, violent crime numbers are down, right? And, and we are facing other issues, but I think that um, having that focused solution, outcome-oriented investment is, is really gonna get us to that place. And as uh, Vice President Carver-Overstone said, there have been other solutions proposed, and I just, I, I feel it's, we're, we're stuck in a place of kind of just, you know, hoping that this strategy is gonna get us to a, to a better place. Um, and it just, it, it seems like it's also gonna damage a lot of lives in the process. Yeah, th thank you, and I, I, I do. I, res I respect that. I do. I, I, I do want to say, though, I, I want to highlight the fact that we are at the table, really working hard with our public health officials, uh, people that are assigned to this, you know, drug market agency coordination center. They're there every day. Uh, people working in the service side of this, uh, the uh, homeless and supportive housing, because a lot of our, our uh, people that we're talking about are unhoused. 
Human Services Agency, trying to connect people back to their, their support system. So there, there's a lot of work being done, you know, in collaboration with what we're doing. And I don't want that to be lost in this conversation because I know when we only talk about the rest statistics, whether it be drug users or sellers, we're not talking about that piece of what this is about, this, this being this agency coordination center. There's a lot of work being done and we're trying to move the needle on bringing these services and, and, and so it's not all policing. Um, but that takes collaboration and to, uh, Vice President Carter Overstone's comment about the report, some of the people who had part in that report are working with us to try to make this work. So I, I just want to make sure that we don't lose sight of that. It's not all about the arrests. I know that's what the questions that were asked, but it's so much more to this than just that. And we're trying to bring all this stuff together. Thank you. Thank you, Sergeant. Could we go to public comment? For members of the public who would like to make public comment regarding line item five, the chief's report, please approach the podium. I'd like to use the overhead again. My son, Aubrey Abacasa, who was murdered August 14, 2006. I have this where Mayor Gavin Newsom said, I know who killed her son. Um, Mayor Gavin Newsom said Thursday, DA know who killed her son. The police know who killed her son. He can name individuals and their addresses. I bring this with me all the time of all the names of the people that was involved murdering my son. The last report we talked about um, how much money has been paid out for the unsolved homicides. And then you put on your agenda about, uh, about the unsolved homicides and finding someone else to pay I mean, finding someone else to pay tipsters to solve our cases. And still, I don't know what's going on with that. If you hired anyone else to, to solve our cases. I bring these pictures of all the unsolved homicides. We all know about them. They're not solved. Again, I bring my, me standing over my son this memory will never leave my mind. I come here every Wednesday to, to bring awareness to the unsolved homicides. This is what the perpetrators have left me, a lifeless body. I'm still looking for someone to solve these unsolved homicides and pay tipsters some kind of money. Again, I bring up, we gotta look back at our history so that we can move forward. That's including my son. What can we do about it? I come here every Wednesday. It's not putting on a show. I'm not here to entertain. This was my child. This is our children. Something needs to be done. Thank you. Members of the public that have any information regarding the murder of Aubrey Abracasa, you can call the 24-7 tip line at 415-575-4444. Hello, good evening, commissioners. Good evening, chief. I firstly want to thank you for that report you've given. And while you all were discussing it, I did want to mention that Seattle 
uh, passed was a majority of Measure 110 in 2020. And what the Measure 110 did was it decriminalized possession of small amounts of hard drugs and established a drug treatment program funded by the marijuana tax. Now, the police officers can only cite the users and has been an abysmal failure. In 2021, there were 745 documented overdoses. Well, in a year later, in 2022, there were 1309, 1,309 overdoses and no treatment center. So I think the problem we face here in San Francisco is the Board of Supervisors is responsible to get the treatment center, and it's SFPD's job to ensure we get the user from point A to point B and ensure the safety of the community. But we're expecting SFPD to do the board's job and their own. So like I said before, thank you, Chief, for the work you've done so far, and we recognize the work, and we want you to keep up with it. Thank you. Hello everyone, um, my name is Joe Shrillo. I'm a um, li licensed clinical social worker here in San Francisco. Um, I actually came to talk about the Dolores Hill bomb because um, I'm a skater, but I will say really quick, um, thank you for reviewing what's really happening on the street. Um, I'm a, um, a therapist on the street with the Harm Reduction Therapy Center. Um, definitely seeing lots of overdoses. So just really um, putting my support behind more coordination. Um, Rehab centers can be like wait lists of up to like two weeks. So while people are waiting, um, the arrests don't seem to be helping folks. And um, yeah, hopefully there can be more re uh, resources put into support and um, medical support on the street and therapy. Um, but my other hat is um, I'm a board member of the San Francisco Skate Club, which is an after school program. Um, I just wanted to read a few points that our members um, wanted me to address to the board. Um, so we know that a lot of, um, most of the um, charges for the 117 folks who were arrested in July at the Dolores Hill bomb were dropped. Um, but we just wanted to see if the city and the commission can bring a little bit more clarity to what's happening to. Um, those folks who were charged, especially the youth, like what happens with their mugshots, their fingerprints, what are the implications if they're arrested or cited again? Um, and just one other point tied to that, um, if, if I can use, I don't know if this is still working. Um, so basically, it's, I don't think it'll show up very clearly, but um, the San Francisco skateboarding laws and the enforcement around the laws um, don't seem to be updated in a lot of the city government websites. I'm just pointing out um, the, the Board of Supervisors um, uh, analyst um, website says that traffic code section 100 says that skateboarding in most areas aside from skate parks and aside from neighborhood sidewalks is illegal. I've personally been um, There's no further public comment. Line item six, DPA director's report discussion. Report on recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Executive Director Henderson. Thank you. 
so we have opened up uh, over 600 cases uh, so far this year. That's a jump in the number of cases that have come in uh, this year from last year. Uh, we've closed uh, 552 cases, which is more cases than we took in uh, this time last year. Uh, we have 304 cases that are still active, uh, and we've sustained 44 cases so far this year. Uh, we've also mediated 31 cases, uh, and we have 22 cases whose investigations have uh, gone beyond uh, a nine-month period. Uh, of those 22 cases, 17 of the cases are told. Uh, we still have seven cases that are pending resolution from the commission, and 85 cases that are pending a resolution uh, with the chief's office. In terms of uh, the past two weeks, we've received uh, about 36 cases have come in since the last police commission when I gave this report. Uh, and the largest percentage uh, of cases that came in, which is 14%, uh, were for uh, allegations involving a neglect of duty, uh, meaning allegations where an officer uh, failed to take a required action uh, by complainants. Uh, the full list of uh, all of those complaints can be found on our website. Uh, in terms of the precinct, uh, the largest number of cases in terms of complaints came in uh, from the past two weeks, the largest uh, from Central Station. We had five uh, allegations that came in regarding uh, Central Station. Uh, and those allegations were for complaints alleging, again, that officers failed to properly investigate or to take action when information was reported to them. Uh, the full breakdown by every precinct, uh, including the airport, uh, can be found online for the allegations that have come in. In terms of uh, outreach, uh, we conducted a mediation conference. We'll talk about that next week. I'll have a summary for you guys uh, outlining the information that we presented. In terms of the audit, uh, we received uh, an exemption from the police commission on DGO 8.10 for calendar year for 2022 activities. And I just want to clarify, you'll see the information in the audit, but I'm just uh, reiterating it just to remind folks on why we needed that exemption because there were no investigations governed by DGO 8.10 in 2022 um, and because revisions to DGO 8.10 are underway as well. So you'll hear more about that as that unfolds. Uh, we have nothing in closed session uh, this evening. Uh, but present in the hearing room today, in addition to myself, is uh, DPA's Chief of Staff, Sarah Hawkins. Also present is uh, Senior Investigator Brent Bajan. And also present uh, is one of our attorneys uh, on our policy team, Jermaine Jones. Uh, for folks that may wish to get in contact with DPA for any reason, uh, you can contact us at sfgov.org. Uh, or you can contact us at 415-241-7711. I'll reserve the rest of my comments for the agenda items as they come up. That concludes my report. Uh, thank you, Director Henderson, for that report. Um, <clears throat> at our last meeting, um, we agendized and discussed um, SFPD's auditing practices as it relates to the audit of um, traffic stop data um, and 
uh, Director McGuire presented on the current practices, which are um, just just checking when there's a when there's an entry made that's not completed, the audit flags it, but it doesn't actually look for um, any signs of, for example, data falsification or anything else that would go to the integrity of our stop data. Uh, I just wanted to, I, I know this is an issue that you've spoken about and, and, and something that's at the core of uh, DPA's work. So I just wanted to invite you to, um, if you had any thoughts on SFPD's current auditing practices and how they could be improved. Yeah, I, I think you raised some of the really important issues on the inquiry about falsification or data analysis, and those were specifically cornerstones. I think we were missing. I did see that report, uh, and I reviewed uh, that document that was presented on the what was referenced as a small data, uh, and I have a number of concerns. And again, I, I can't discuss any of the pending cases uh, that I have specifically or those specific investigations, but in reference to the overall information uh, and the bigger issue, which is what I think you're asking me about, uh, I, uh, I think there's some real challenges that exist that are actual. Um, e even from the audit that we were presented, small a audit, uh, from the charts, uh, it still shows a number of outstanding entries that go back as far as 2020. I had real concerns about uh, the information identified in the charts uh, that were numbers were deleted. That's a third of the cases were deleted. 13 of those cases from 2020 uh, are still in progress. For me, these are just numbers on a page. There is literally no analysis or explanation that speaks to the issues that we were investigating and continue to investigate as it relates to stop data. Uh, it's not in compliance with any of the audit steps that were committed to uh, under collaborative reform, the CRI, or, or even the bureau orders. That's not what, at, at least what I saw, that's not what this is. That, that doesn't speak to what was mandated or to the data that we requested or tried to raise in evaluating the stop data. Uh, we, DPA, uh, has raised uh, the issues about stop data and the reliability of that data for over a year now, uh, but we have, I haven't seen a change either in the response or in the data, and this uh, report did not answer any of those questions uh, as well. I've said this before that we are a small department and we have limited staff. We are working diligently on the individual cases that we have, but we have real concerns. Uh, we have real concerns about the information that we have um, that speak as well to the individual discipline without having a broader understanding or full measurement of both scale and scope of what the problems can be. We've seen that problem in other jurisdictions, and I'm not saying that we have those exact same problems in San Francisco, but we have the same indications of those problems here in San Francisco. But it's difficult to drill down on individual transgressions without a broader understanding of more data and broader analysis, and those are the two things that we need. I would suggest, and I think we're moving in a direction where uh, the best option would be a review, which is uh, comparable, but something different from an audit, 
we've done audits in the past, as everyone is aware, award-winning, I might add. Uh, and so I'm going to uh, begin a review, which is separate from an audit, um, because it's a little more nimble in terms of the analysis, but that review is going to call for us to either work with uh, outside agencies and or with the department, but we'll absolutely need more access to data uh, and analysis, which is what I think, this is where I think this process and where the project needs to go. So that's what I'd like to do, um, but I'd be calling or asking for someone from the commission to continue that work with us as we unfold to confirm or deny the uh, problems that I think we've uncovered thus far. I know uh, Commissioner Benedicto has worked with our audit team extensively. I don't want to expand his role anymore. Yes, I do. <laughs> I don't even need to dance around it. <laughs> it is, we, I, I think that's, that's what I would like to see. That's what I think would be helpful in addressing this issue. I, I, I think the individual cases that come up are a real concern, but if we really want to speak to the problem in ways that confirm or deny the problems that we've seen in other jurisdictions, I think that's the step that needs to take place. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's no, where thanks. I'm that's thinking. very helpful. I think that I think that does answer the question. That's helpful, and I, I think as we said last time, um, we I think we need to agendize this issue again to um, coalesce around. Uh, a specific course of action um, and the, the thoughts that you laid out certainly make sense to me. Um, Commissioner Walker. Uh, thank you. Um, now I have a question. I, I think we've talked about this before and I, I think it would be helpful when we look at this in light of sort of the discussions that happen every week around should we be arresting drug users or what should we be doing? Um, the information that we're getting around complaints that come in, I would like to see kind of the complaints around that issue of people calling because there's folks who are doing stuff out in the street and when officers come they don't respond. I mean, I, I would imagine since I've been on the commission, most the bit largest percentage are inaction rather than action. And so that's real, you know? I mean, there's a lot of what police are doing, especially as we ask for community policing that is about crime prevention, not crime fighting per se. And so, um, you know, it's, the if the complaints are around um, mental health crises or if, the, if they're around drug use in the streets or if, you know, the drug use accelerates to something else and, I mean, I think we have had a policy in the last few years of not doing anything, letting people be and making sure there was, you know, no violence happening. But I think that the last few months, there has been an effort to stop the action. Yeah, so, I, I would say, and I, and I think this, which is why I report uh, those statistics yeah. as, in as much detail as possible. Yeah. And I try to make sure that it's clear that, uh, as a disclaimer, these are the allegations because these, those exactly are the things that people are calling yeah. to complain about without the specifics 
um, from the subsequent and following investigations that come right. from it. Yeah. But this is, you know, the commission asked me to report yeah. on these things. That's kind of why I do it. I, it's, it's harder for me to drill down uh, in all of the specifics, although I do to 100% on everything that comes to and through the agency every mm -hmm. week. And that's why I put it uh, online, just so there's complete transparency sure. about what people yeah. are asking for with some of the specifics, uh, and I focus on just the general ones, but you are correct that just in terms of a review, and I think this is part of what you were asking is what we're seeing is that that trend in terms of folks complaining that they've called to have someone arrested or that they've called to have a police report generated for something and it's not happening continues to be the top allegation separate from all of the other analysis and complaints and investigations that come into the agency, that has not diminished. What I've seen in terms of diminished or changes week to week is the percentage get higher or lower, but still remains the majority. It's yeah. rare yeah. That, that, that that allegation or that complaint is not the top complaint yeah. uh, at the agency. I think it's a it's part it's a relevant part of the conversation we have yeah. about alternatives, and I, I think ha knowing that knowing the need out there um, is going to help us find better solutions as an alternate response when we can. <laughs> so I don't disagree, yeah. and and to me, when you guys are having the conversation, the balance uh, on the other end of the conversation is just this: that the calls are still coming in, and I think the department, yeah. uh, you know, as the chief has addressed in the past the calls come in every day for everything. Yep. And these allegations, I think, reflect the majority of those calls that come not just to the department, but to the agency themselves, asking for a demand for services, a demand for a response, without a broader breakdown of the specifics of what those calls are. But those come subsequently later, and then you see them in my further investigations, and then those are broken out quarterly and annually. I mean, I think it's also important to note that the care court is starting up around the, the severe mental health issues and um, the referrals from family and loved ones that that have more impact on the system. Um, at, at some level, yeah. that these numbers are a measurement of the need <laughs> of that efficiency or if it's working yeah. in terms of the public's response to it. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you very much, Vice President Carter Oberstone. I, I definitely agree with you, uh, Director Henderson, that I, I think that there, uh, some sort of formalized review uh, I think makes sense. Uh, it, it's something that, that I've discussed with um, Steve Flaherty, who does audit at DPA, that, that I think it's important, an important specific step so we can sort of achieve that transparency. I wonder, Chief, if you had, um, I know it, it was, it's you know, being floated and talked about live, but if, if you had a reaction uh, or wanted to respond to that, to a, a possibility of having DPA do some sort of directed review about about the about the stop data, yeah, or, or, or a response because you know I know we heard from Director McGuire that one reason why the audits as they are right now are really only able to look at are so limited. Right? We talked about how they're only looking at started and not completed, and one reason was that there's just one so there's just not the resources. But if if it were something that uh, uh, to at least give us a snapshot of uh, and, and, and better insight into what uh, you know the scope of the problem is, because we've seen this in other departments. If, if that'd be something that you'd be open to working with 
the DPA on? Yeah, I'm open to working with DPA on that. Uh, I, I just want to say also we have to sustain effort. You know, mm -hmm. I think uh, Mrs. Rosenstein read part of the substantial compliance, and one of the issues was we got to staff it. Mm -hmm. we, we have to staff this. You know, uh, uh, the audits are good. They're great. But audit recommendations have to be implemented, and you all know that because we've been held to account on that. And we have to staff it, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of the bottom line. You, the scope is fine. I am open to that to answer your question. But we have to staff this to where audits are sustainable because Ab absolutely. It, it has to be an ongoing thing. Absolutely. And I think that they aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, I think that a one-time review that, that, like as Director Henderson said, is maybe short of an audit so it doesn't carry with it some of the same requirements uh, uh, might provide us a roadmap. And then long term, yeah, absolutely, we, uh, to, to add more to that unit that's uh, sustainable, I, I, think, I think is good. Um, I think then if I'm, I'll, I'll, continue, I'll reach out uh, with Director Henderson's, I'll, I'll reach out to Steve Flaherty to see. Um, and I, th I think what would be you know, I, I think that we've talked about this a lot, Chief. I think that the system works best when DPA and, uh, and SSPD sort of have a unified front and they're collaborating on something instead of, instead of in a more adversarial nature when, when it comes to policy changes. Uh, I wonder if I, I, see, I see Director McGuire there. I don't want to put Director McGuire on the spot. If you could ask um, if, if we could work collaboratively uh, with uh, DPA to come up with some sort of a specific action proposal to satisfy what the Vice President has asked for so we can present uh, at a future commission meeting, this is the one-time review proposal. There's buy-in from DPA, there's buy-in from SFPD, there's, this is the data sharing they've agreed to, and so we're not getting, uh, and, and if, if we could present that to, to my fellow commissioners for a vote, and then that action can be taken. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always willing to work with um, Steve. I'm Go, we go way back to the controller's office together, um, and I'm also always welcome, willing to work with Janelle or whomever is, is appointed or assigned the work. Great. For sure. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Director Anderson. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think one of the big issues is just in, uh, speaking to one of the, the concerns that the chief raised in terms of personnel, a lot of this can go almost the majority of this conversation is really focused on access to data, less than the personnel to evaluate what specifically is a problem or not a problem. The issue is more access to the data and the raw data even for the small audit information that was presented. Going through and evaluating that information is, I think, a big part of the solution that confirms or denies whether or not there are a pattern in what we've identified are clear problems, whether or not that's individual or systemic, that's, I think, a big issue. I know you said you wanted to agendize the issue and we can come together then on what the plan is, but I'm mindful of limited resources, both from DPA, we're a very small department in comparison to the police department, and I'm mindful of the, the chief's concerns about staff and personnel uh, for this work as well, which is one of the ways, one of the reasons, one of the very reasons why I think a review is the best option that is open to working with uh, third-party agencies like an academic institution or third-party agency or third-party department to help leverage both the analysis um, and the data to make sure that we have something that's accurate 
uh, and reflective of what I think the concerns that are raised from the individual cases that we've seen. Great. Thank you. And uh, th yeah, I think the, we'll get to talk about this more later, but the DOJ COPS report specifically um, suggests using an outside organization. I think that would hopefully satisfy the chief's concerns about staffing. And I am surprised to hear that access to data has been an impediment since by state law, all of our stop data is publicly available except for personal identifying information. So I'm hoping that uh, any issue to data access can be resolved. Um, with dispatch. Okay, seeing no other names in the queue, uh, Sergeant, could you take us to public comment? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item six, DPA director's report, please approach the podium. There is no public comment. Line item seven, commission reports, discussion and possible action. Commission reports will be limited to a brief description of activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and scheduling of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Uh, a couple of updates uh, from me, um, let's see where to start. Uh, earlier this week, I uh, spent some time with the policy development unit, which has been sort of restructured to work within our reading directives unit uh, and the way the department is handling its policy development. I believe that uh, the vice president and Commissioner Walker have also attended similar meetings in the past. Um, they're a, an incredible group of, of officers who are trying to, uh, who are spending a lot of time trying to get uh, our, our policies in line. We, we heard from some members of the public today that there's uh, a, a disheartening number of our policies that still date back to the 1990s. Uh, yeah, I, I want to acknowledge the, um, I, I talked to the chief about this before, about the, the progress this commission has made. I think we've passed more general order updates in the last uh, year than in the, in the preceding significant number of years. Uh, so a lot of progress is being made, but a lot of progress still needs to be done. And so uh, it was really educational to sit in with, um, along with some of the commission staff, uh, and uh, as well as Assistant Chief Flaherty with, uh, in that meeting. Um, I also want to acknowledge, I, I believe they left, but the members of the public who raised the issue of uh, our public alert policy as one of the policies that, that date back, that's that dates back to the 90s. I've asked them to send, I believe it was the Oakland policy that they both worked on uh, to our commission staff so it can be posted um, for members of the public to see and hope to see that among all the policies that are hopefully updated um, going forward as well. Um, as uh, fellow commissioners know, we've continued to search for a our uh, policy analyst position. Um, Commissioner Walker and Vice President Carter Oberson and I are, will be conducting interviews for that shortly, uh, and so hopefully that uh, long saga of that vacancy will be coming to a close um, as well. Um, and I also, uh, lastly, I wanted to talk a little bit about the open letter that the Police Officer Association, or actually, sorry, before I do that, uh, I, I also wanted to acknowledge uh, Captain O'Brien noted is Domestic Violence Survivors Month. It's also Hispanic Heritage Month and Filipino American Heritage Month. So, um, you know, a, a lot of celebrations uh, in this month as well. Um, but I, I wanted to close to briefly talk about the open letter that the Police Officer Association uh, sent to the commission office and shared with the media. I know Lieutenant McRae uh, spoke about it in public comment. I don't see her in the gallery anymore, uh, but as she said, uh, she's easy to find. So I'll, I'll if given the opportunity, I'll, I'll share these thoughts with her as well. Um, 
I, I think it is important to note that every single member of this commission takes confidentiality incredibly seriously. It is, uh, we are bound by charter, by state law, half of us are attorneys, are bound by our own professional responsibilities and take, and take confidentiality and our duties as the discipline body for our officers very seriously and that is true of every single commissioner. We sometimes have disagreements up here on policy, on strategy, on tactics. Uh, but we do not have disagreements on our serious commitment to confidentiality of officers uh, under our disciplinary proceedings. And uh, it was disappointing to, that this letter questioned that commitment, but also accused uh, a commissioner specifically, accused Vice President Card Oberstone, uh, without any evidence of violating what is, again, uh, a, a very significant and, and serious duty. Uh, there's agreement, I think, along this commission to get to the bottom of how confidential inf information made it into the public. Uh, and I think that there is agreement that we want to get to the bottom. I, we, we heard Commissioner Walker talk about agendizing that. And I think that is 100% appropriate and called for. You heard the Vice President call for that too. I, what I don't think is called for is to jump to a conclusion, to an accusation, a very serious accusation, uh, without any evidentiary basis. Um, and that was, that was disappointing to see. I understand that the POA has a responsibility to protect its officers. We as commissioners have a responsibility to protect officers' confidentiality as well. And I think, uh, I've said this to a lot of people, it's important that when we have disagreements on policy, we don't have disagreements on motive, and we don't have disagreements that we uh, have similar goals, and it was, uh, it's been overall, I think, a productive year of working with the POA on a, a number of issues, and it was disappointing to see what, an accusation that didn't have any evidence. Uh, when we've seen in the reporting that it was apparently, we've seen uh, from the publication that published the story that it was due, to, there was a document redaction issue, and n nothing at all tying it to the malice of any individual commissioner. And so I personally would like to stand up that I don't believe any of my fellow commissioners would violate a confidentiality of officers. I believe that every single one of my fellow commissioners takes that commitment seriously, and I defend my fellow commissioners individually. I defend our commission as a body, and I think that it was uh, um, out of line to, to make that accusation without evidence. And I join my commissioners, Commissioner Walker and the Vice President, in hoping that we get to the bottom of how this confidential information was um, produced, but that we should stick to facts and not baseless accusations. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Benedicto. And, um, you know, I, I echo all of those words, uh, all those sentiments, and um, I will be responding to the POA's letter in due course. Um, just two uh, updates for me. Um, I, uh, like Commissioner Benedicto, uh, was invited to attend an orientation session with the Policy Development Unit. Uh, it, I, I very much appreciate the invitation uh, and a chance to meet some of the new employees uh, and a chance to get a better understanding of how they view the policymaking process and some of their thoughts and challenges. Um, so I appreciated that. Um, and also, like Commissioner Benedicto, I will uh, be sitting on the interview panel uh, uh, interviewing applicants for the Commission's policy analyst position and look forward to um, hiring someone and, and filling this, this 
vacancy that's been open for quite some time. Uh, Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President Carter. Overstowed, a uh, quick report from me. Uh, had a good meeting with uh, Commander Para uh, from the uh, Community Engagement Division, put him in contact with uh, some folks that reached out to me about contributing and offering some uh, youth development training for the department officers and, um, uh, and also contributing to community policing strategies. Uh, the connection was made and they will be moving forward trying to coordinate calendars. Um, I had a conversation with the uh, Juvenile Probation Department President Margaret Brodkin, who invited me to go to the Youth Commission, sorry, to the uh, Juvenile Probation Commission to provide an update about our progress towards um, initiating the pre-booking program, and that update they requested in, in November. So it gives us a little bit of time to get a little more information. Uh, thanks, Chief, for uh, reaching out to the policy folks to get us the, uh, the revised uh, juvenile DGO 701 draft, um, which uh, I know is a work in progress, and, and it's good to be able to get my eyes on it so that we can provide some feedback and, and suggestions. Um, and lastly, I am working to coordinate with the Youth Commission, uh, who has some questions around the pre-booking program that we are um, working on developing. And lastly, I do I did. Uh, around this data conversation, I had a, a meeting with a professor from San Francisco State University who is interested in offering and leveraging some of their staffing uh, to kind of comb through all these data uh, points. I know that it may be a challenge to uh, engage a third party, but I think when somebody's leveraging uh, their expertise, I think we should seriously take a look at that and see how it is that they can contribute, uh, considering uh, what a large and heavy lift that's going to be. So um, I know that this is going to be agendized for us to figure out what the path moving forward will be, so I'm very interested in participating in that conversation. Uh, that's my report. Thank you. Commissioner Walker. Um, thank you. Um, so I will just reiterate again that we are in ongoing discussions about um, the recruitment of women into the department um, with the Assistant Chief Flaherty over there. Um, the the issue of um, child care has, has been raised and we also um, I've been discussing this with at the state level with our senator and our um, the governor's office to actually help with. Uh, I know that the the state gave money to help with recruitment, and this is one of those issues of that could really help um, with these kind of services available for folks in our uh, department. So, I also discussed it with the sheriff's office, who um, is also very supportive of having this service available. Um, so I'm really excited about that and also look forward to the update about the lactation stations and how we um, better improve those situations. Um, also, there's ongoing conversations around, about the, um, the patrol specials project. Um, I talked again with our city attorney and we are just, um, the next meeting I think is October 10th where we're going to start discussing very specifics about what it would take to um, do some pilot programs with our community benefit district partners, um, the specifics of that. And 
um, not just the rules and regulations and training requirements, equipment, but also, you know, what we have to do to amend um, current agreements with the community benefit districts. There's a lot of support um, from folks who are already doing private security who really want to partner more. Um, I've also spoken to the, um, the folks in Department of Emergency Management um, that are running the HEART program, which is the sort of part, the parallel of parallel infrastructure creation to get folks um, not aimed at jail or hospitals into wherever they're going. And um, it needs a whole other infrastructure to support the bringing all the parties together. So um, I really am looking forward to that discussion and seeing how that all works. The, the departments are already speaking together, but really having the kind of infrastructure we have that allows us to transport people <laughs> who we're arresting and who are in an emergency, um, it needs to be as effective. Um, so hopefully we can, um, I'll, I'll update and bring people in on that. Um, I think that's it for me. Oh, I did want to mention that there is a October 28, 22nd, there is a pink brunch at Bill Graham Auditorium um, uh, supporting women's health, um, breast cancer, supported by the SFPD, especially the women's caucus, or the, is it the caucus? Of, the women's group within the department. Um, I'm happy to share information. Maybe I'll give it to the um, to sergeant, um, and he can let everybody know about it, but it would be great to have everybody there. So it should be well attended. I think they're anticipating 14 to 1,500 people. So, okay, October 22nd. Commissioner Gee. Thank you very much there, Vice President Carter Wilson. I just want to report that uh, last month, um, September 22nd, I was able to attend a safety meeting with um, CYC and CADC, uh, that's uh, Community Youth Center and the Chinese American Democratic Club that held a safety uh, forum for in the Richmond District with uh, Captain uh, Chris uh, Canney. Uh, some of the concerns with the merchants was that on there, uh, there have been quite a few break-ins. Um, so I re replied to them that uh, they should also check their locks and making sure it's uh, properly uh, the right type of locks for their, for their door fronts. And also, hopefully, they have cameras there to keep them safe. Uh, CYC was able to pass out some safety package uh, informations. Uh, I was there briefly to just uh, introduce myself and to listen to their concerns. One of the merchants asked me, he says, have you ever tried filing a report online? And I said, yes, I have. And he says, um, his question is, is it difficulty? And I say, yes, it is difficult to go through it as I experienced it myself. And the last one was, uh, is there translations for other languages? And I did not know the answer. So uh, maybe I'll talk to the chief after this meeting and get that information if you have it. Uh, that's all I have to report. Thank you. Sergeant, can we go to public comment, please? Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item seven, commission reports, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item eight, 
Discussion and presentation on benchmark first sign a case management system at the request of the commission. Discussion. Good afternoon, Commissioners. My name is Ron Huberman, Chief uh, Director. I am the CEO of Benchmark Analytics, and we are grateful for the opportunity to be able to present to you today. I'm joined by my colleague, Nick Montgomery, Chief Research Officer at Benchmark Analytics. Hello, Commissioners and Chief. Great. So we thought it would make sense. We'll give a quick overview, and of course, you'll interrupt with any questions you may have or leave them to end, whatever the appropriate protocol would be. But I want to just start by thanking the Chief and all the members of the San Francisco Police Departments who have been our partners in this endeavor um, and have uh, been incredibly forthcoming and hardworking in get getting us to uh, the current position that we're in. So thank you for all that work. Great. Uh, there's fundamentally three parts of this program and today we're going to be focusing on two parts. One is First Sign. First Sign is the brand name or the public name for the product that is an early warning and intervention system. And we'll be talking a lot about that product, what the data that goes into it, and how we come up with the information that we do, as well as a system called CARE. It stands for Case Action Response Engine, and it's what records the follow-up actions uh, after an officer has been identified for incremental support. So let me just start by saying a few quick things about uh, Benchmark. We were founded uh, out of the University of Chicago um, uh, where the company was first formed. Uh, it was initially a, research pro uh, initially a research project that uh, spanned over 10 years that tried to understand a fundamental question, which was can you use basic police operating data to understand the likelihood that an officer is going to have a problematic incident and then use that data to try to get in front of it and help steer that officer and provide interventions and support to help get them on a better and different trajectory. The result of that research from the University of Chicago is that uh, the answering is overwhelmingly yes. Uh, police data does clearly show some officers need incremental support. Uh, it is identifiable and knowable, uh, and there's a way to uh, interact and do that. Uh, our work is funded by the Joyce Foundation. It's a non-for-profit organization uh, that is based out of the city of Chicago and works primarily in the Great Lakes region. Uh, as well as the American Institutes for Research. Uh, the American Institutes for Research is the, one of the largest nonprofit research organizations in the country, uh, and they do a lot of work uh, with municipalities, counties, and others uh, in this particular work. And so the three things that we fundamentally focus on as a company are how we get and how police departments manage all of their people data. We do not touch the crime side of the house. We focus only on people data, so internal staff data and information uh, of what we do. We then use that information to help police departments understand which officers need incremental support and intervention, and then we help them track and manage those interventions, ultimately to lead to better outcomes uh, for those officers and the public that they serve. Um, just a few quick notes about us. We operate the world's largest multi-jurisdictional database. Why that's important is it's very hard for any one police agency to put together uh, all of the information you'd want to understand police performance globally. Uh, but because we do this across the country, 
with agencies of all sizes, we're able to take what we learn from any one agency and port those learnings from the data and analytics to other agencies that we work with. And then the last thing I'll quickly say is we operate, uh, we host, I should say, through the University of Chicago, something called the National Police Early Intervention Outcome Research Consortium. It's a mouthful. Uh, but ultimately, it's a place where police departments come together and can share best practices and understanding around what interventions work, what do you do, what are the best model policies around how to intervene, how to, inter how to identify problematic conduct in this and, and the like. Um, just a quick other note here, um, I'm trying to look while I, I, I talk here. We're the only research-based product on the market, and so up until this point, and really, uh, the history of law enforcement has been trigger-based systems. If you get three of this over a wide window of time, as an example, they alert. Uh, we have a research paper uh, from our colleagues at the University of Chicago that shows that those generally lead to a 70% false positive problem, meaning you're alerting a ton of officers that shouldn't be alerted, and typically a 40% false negative problem, meaning you're missing officers that you should be identifying. We came about this and said there's got to be a better way, and a research-based approach is what ultimately uh, ended up mattering the most uh, to do this. So what we can tell you is we've been very deep in this work with SFPD to date, um, and we've developed a model that is deployable and ready and pending authorization of a policy for its deployment. But ultimately, the data science results of it uh, show that the model has 81% efficacy. What does that number mean? It means that 81% of the time when we identify an officer within the system, within the next 12 months, they'll go on to have an investigation uh, for a major event. Um, it is about what we find in policing across the U.S. Uh, our average efficacy rate is about 85%. Uh, I believe it's 81% today just because we're not live because the system gets smarter uh, over a window of time. In the SF context, we used over 79 different data variables to come up with the early warning system. So there are 79 different variables that are involved. They fundamentally come from four different data sources, officer attributes, arrest records, internal affairs data, and use of force records. Uh, we find about 5%, and this is a national number, of American policing when we engage in police departments to be at risk. Um, what we can tell you about American policing globally or nationally is it's never evenly distributed. So don't think about 5% of an agency being at risk that's spread out evenly. Typically when we find risk, we find it in pockets so that any one community might be experiencing more risk than others might. And that typically that 5% is creating 66% of the disproportionate force events. I'm now going to pass it on to my colleague Nick to talk a little bit about how the system uh, works, uh, and we can get into all the details as well. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Ron. So the way that the platform works is that it takes data fed daily from the SFPD data systems, brings all that information in, and converts it into an assessment of those officers uh, and their activity levels. It's looking at sworn officers um, who have at least one year of activity um, to begin that assessment process, and any officer is included that has a one year or more. As it's looking at the data on a daily basis, it compares officers' uh, behavior patterns over the course of their, uh, their tenure to um, other patterns that have existed inside SFPD historically. So it's looking for those other officers who have been investigated in the past and looking at those patterns uh, to, to identify similar trends for individual officers. 
Those officers are identified and selected by the system. And then there's a secondary system that looks to compare officers to their peers. So not only is the platform identifying compared to prior patterns, but saying, are the individual officers selected different from officers who are deployed in similar areas, similar ranks, similar times? Uh, once it makes it through that secondary gate, the officers are released to a, a dashboard for prioritized intervention. Officers are categorized into an actionable state, an advisable state, or a minimal state um, for supervisors to go through and begin the review process to determine next steps. So what does that actually look like? And what you'll see here on the screen, uh, as well as in your, your printouts, uh, it's providing detailed information on that officer's risk history, right? So have they been alerted on before? Uh, has it changed over time? Uh, essentially, is this a recurring pattern for the officer? It's looking at information for arrest patterns, uh, complaints, investigation and discipline, and use of force. And for each of those, it's looking over the course of the past years to compare that officer and whether or not they have similar or greater levels of force, investigations, uh, et cetera, compared to their peers and the overall department. If those individual areas that may be issues for the officer, they're flagged as either elevated or high, telling the supervisor and the user that the officer is in the top 5% or top 1% uh, overall for the, uh, for the, uh, the department. Um, and then they can follow down for detailed information about the specific events that the officers were involved in uh, over their recent history. This part of the page is what's the main place for supervisors to interact and engage with to understand their uh, individual officers who have been alerted on. They get a broader view where they can see all of the officers that they're working with, and that is based on their permissions and their scope within the department. So sergeants would just see their unit, and as you move up in the chain of command, they would see other officers that are underneath their purview, all triaged for them into that actionable, advisable, uh, and then minimal state for them uh, in terms of the officer risk. With that, they can also track whether or not they've begun their interventions, how long, and click in to see additional courses of action. And that's really where the meat is. That course of action process is where supervisors working with um, support from across FPD, SFPD can identify exactly what an individual officer needs, where their issues might have been, and um, supports mentoring, coaching, coaching training, et cetera, to, um, to correct their behavior. Uh, that process is then reviewed and submitted to command staff for approval. Um, so that everyone's aware of the officers and the supports that they're receiving. So as we look at the system and the way that it's being implemented, um, I want to echo Ron's statements earlier that we've had strong partnership from across the police department uh, in terms of implementing, getting all the data in, and building and developing policies. Um, we've got the data in there currently for arrests, complaints, use of force, uh, and assignment history, and that as additional information is added over time, it can be added to the algorithm uh, to enhance the selection process as well. So that overall is what we're seeing with the, uh, the platform, and as Ron had mentioned earlier, the system is ready to go in, uh, right now, and it's waiting policy approval. And we know there's been, I would just say as well, a tremendous amount of work that's gone into that policy research and work to try to identify uh, what makes the most sense uh, for San Francisco. Really, really great work by uh, the whole San Francisco team. Great. Thank you both so much for that uh, illuminating presentation. Just a couple questions for me. Um, can you just 
at the very outset, you said we don't look at crime data. We only look at in-house data. C can you just clarify what, what exactly you mean by that? Yeah, so we look at officer behavior. We don't, unlike a traditional case, a, a case management or a record management system that captures crime data, right? Our whole focus as a company and the work that we do is focused on officer attributes. So because of that, there's, we're not capturing crime. What we do capture is activity, though, right? Officer-based activity. So arrest, uh, use of force, vehicle pursuit, uh, internal affairs complaints that might be alleged against the officer. All of that data is brought in, but we're not capturing otherwise criminal data inside the application. Gotcha. We're using that in the, in the course of the evaluation. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. And then you mentioned the 81% efficacy rate. Does that include both false positive and false negative uh, error? No, with, with the, that statistic speaks to specifically is the likelihood that says from the moment someone is alerted, right? Of, so let's put it this way. If 100 officers were alerted, um, 81 within the next 12 months would have an investigation for, I think the definition we use here is a major adverse event. So would, will there be some investigation that's launched? I see. So... Um I think maybe I'm not understanding this then. So you mean you tested it against historical data and you're saying if we, you know, if we had known what we knew at the time, these officers would have been flagged before their event, basically. That's correct. So, okay. And then, but then, so I guess my flip side, so that's I, capturing, I guess, false positive error, right? But then do we have a sense for the number of officers who uh, we wouldn't have caught who nevertheless would have had a... Who then go on to be investigated. Right. Yeah. So we've, the way that we've optimized the model, and this is a decision made in, in partnership with the, the department, is to optimize for making sure that we get the, when we do flag someone, that we're flagging the correct person. So that we gain buy-in and trust with those officers. So we're maximizing, or minimizing false positives. Right. Um, and so that's, we're at that 5% is what we're seeing in terms of officers uh, across the department overall, we're not optimizing for the false negatives. And so do we have a sense, like have we quantified the type two error for this model? Mm, we don't have the specific type two error on that, but that's something we can provide. And, and, and just out of curiosity, that yeah. seems like something one would wanna know. I'm just curious why that, why that isn't something that was, I mean, I understand yeah. why you might wanna focus on one versus the other, but I'm just curious like uh, why the assessment of the model's efficacy didn't involve assessment of type two error? It's included as part of our detailed review okay. of what's actually happening inside the model, but our selection criteria for have we achieved the, sort of the goals of the model focus on the false positives. Great, okay. Um, so you mentioned there were 79 variables, and I one question I just occurred to me is, will it be transparent to the person looking at the dashboard why any particular officer was flagged? I mean, nowadays we read about AI where the AI is doing a great job at whatever it's supposed to do, but you just don't know what happened behind the curtain. And so I'm, with this number of variables, I'm just curious, will it be reasonably clear why you were flagged? Yeah, if we could, you know, we, we, we've got screenshots of a system that you can interact with, right? What it fundamentally allows a street supervisor to do uh, and it's really designed for a supervisor, right, is to take a look at an officer for a window of time and understand uh, what is the nature of arrests that are occurring? What is the outcome of those arrests? Are they, are they resulting in uh, force? Now, force, the system doesn't treat force negatively, right? The system is measuring 
what we would call as proportionality of force. So relative to how much resistance the officer encountered, how much force was ultimately used uh, to overcome that from a pattern perspective. We never look at one individual event, right? We're looking at a pattern of conduct. And so ultimately what we are, what the system is optimizing for and what it's assessing for is to help supervisors understand what are the nature and types of arrests? What is the nature and type of force that, that officer is using? What is the nature and type of allegations or investigations that might be occurring with that officer? And then it localizes it for them. So, um, you know, we had the chance to listen to some of the dialogue today. So, for example, an officer who's working in the tenderloin, comparing them to an officer that might be working in a community that is very low crime would be an unfair comparison, right? There's going to be fundamentally different levels or necessity of force utilization. So it gives that supervisor the immediate peer group comparison across all these domains so they can say, okay, if I'm a midnight sergeant in the tenderloin, how is this officer relative to other officers who are performing the same job function in the same neighborhood, uh, interacting with the same, uh, same members of the public? Um, and so what we typically see is it's pretty obvious when you look at that dashboard and you look at these things to say, okay, this officer may have a problem with verbal engagement because it's the nature and type of allegations they get. This officer might have challenges with de-escalation. Um, so the system provides enough data and descriptions to do that. We as a company don't include any analysis that can't be explained. So we are not, a, we are not an AI company where we just run you know, random force or any other, you know, uh, machine learning algorithm and says, aha, someone's at risk. If we can't explain it in a way that, and we use focus groups of supervisors from across the country, that an officer, that a supervisor can't look at it and say, ah, I think I get the problem, um, then it's, we're, we're not using those measures. And that's a big part of why those peer comparisons are in there and that secondary screening part is to make sure that it's interpretable. Right, and, and on that on that point of kind of normalizing or, or, or adjusting for other factors, I, what kind of work went into ensuring that kind of we understand which direction the causality is pointing into? So, for example, you gave the example of um, uh, normalizing for uh, where which district station the officer is assigned to. But let, let's say, for example, an officer is assigned to a specific unit, and that unit experiences kind of higher use of force. How do you know that that should be kind of controlled for because that unit is just in put in more situations where they encounter those types of situations? Or it's the opposite. It's that officers who are more likely to use force are disproportionately assigned to that unit. How does the model kind of understand what's causing what? So I think, I mean, it's a great question, right? So there's, as we think about the trade-off between um, the model itself purely identifying officers who will be investigated in the next year versus selecting down to just those people who are different from their unit. So it's a, it's a two-part process intentionally for that. And it's not, it does not entirely rule out the possibility that if everyone is high in the unit, that it's gonna allow those officers to not be selected for. So that's definitely something we monitor for inside the system uh, as part of our ongoing processing within the data. But there are certain patterns that even in a unit that, w so when we said that there's you know, a small percentage of a police force that we identify, I'm gonna speak uh, nationally, right, that may have problematic conduct, that that 5% is never even, they're in a unit, right? It's, it's uh, Commissioner, it's what you're describing. 
Um, but even within problematic units, patterns appear that we identify. So for example, uh, are you, do you have a large amount of on-view, right, discretionary arrests associated with uh, the uh, arrestee resisting arrest where there's um, injury, okay? That, that pattern, repeated, uh, is almost always super problematic. And if you have a unit involved in that, right, that has a lot of that, then even though the unit might have a lot of utilization of force, it's still going to be identified um, in our system. And to be very clear about one thing, our system, we expend a lot of analytical time um, thinking about the fact that the system should never be alerting for high activity, right? So you can have an officer who's got a ton of arrests and a ton of other activity and never get flagged in our system. It is not about activity, it is the outcome of that activity that the system's measuring against. Great, that's helpful. Last question for me, this is more of a straightforward question. Uh, you described kind of this one year probationary period before you get provisionally kind of sorted. Um, and part of that involves comparing your stats to historical stats. Are those historical stats just SFPD or is that relying on your other jurisdictional uh, databases? It's purely the SFPD patterns and trends. The national database helps inform what, where the model starts, but everything about what's happening inside the model for SFPD is SFPD specific. Great. Thanks so much. Um, Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you so much, um, Vice President Carter-Oberstone. Thank you for that presentation. I know it's been rescheduled um, at, at least once, and so thank you for, for your flexibility on that. Uh, th this seems like a, a program that has a lot of potential. I mean, we've been calling for a modernized early intervention system program. Uh, I've been calling for that since long before I was in the commission, since it was in the DOJ report, it was in the Blurban report, um, and so gl I'm glad to see that that we're, we're moving forward on that. Um, I, I want, I think my, my question is for Chief. When, when, when they mentioned that um, all that's left is, is, is the policy implementation stage, do you mean that there's a general order that needs to go to the commission? Or like what's, what's the, what are the next steps in terms of implementation? So we've put out, um, we've already put out the first phase of um, training. We put out some videos uh, to socialize this with mm -hmm. the department. As we work through, and I won't say troubleshoot, but whatever issues come up in this in this year, we will take that. And if we make to, need to make adjustments to the training that we've already put out, to anything that we've already put in paper as far as the protocols, that would be during that period. So not not DGO. I think um, it's it's not necessarily DGO. A lot of this is operationally setting the right protocols based on whatever we find during this year. And if I could just add to that, just so with uh, Vice President Carter Overstone's question, you know, there's always, I mean, this is the obvious, but I'll state it because it has, has not been said. There's always a, a human element to, to the analysis. You know, these systems, as good as they are, only are effective when the reviewers, you know, understand what to do with the information. So like the unit, you, unit question. It's a great question, by the way, but um, somebody has to dig deeper to determine whether these things that might be red flags are in fact problematic issues. The system is, can only alert. And so part of this is incumbent upon the department to make sure our folks are trained, they understand what to look for, what questions to ask, where to dig when these alerts come up. And, and that is vital to the success, in my opinion, of this working the way it's supposed to. Um, 
Thank you for that. And so, so as, as I understand it, then there's nothing that is needed on the commission level to enable the continued implementation of the benchmark system. Not, not at this point. I mean, there may be changes afoot as we dig into um, kind of what this what this offers. Um, I think this is going to open up a lot more ability for us to do what EIS is designed to do. So that might come with re requests for the commission to to weigh in on if if it touches any of our policies. As, as it stands right now, EIS isn't governed by. There's not a general order on EIS, correct? Uh, no, there's not okay. a specific order on EIS. Okay, so it's not like they would need to amend any general order to, to enable this to, conti to continue to move forward, right? That's correct, but okay. I'll double check that right now because it can look real quick. Okay, yeah, and, and I know that, you know, I, I know Commissioner Yanez has, had, has showed great leadership on this and pushing it forward. So I know there's great attention on, uh, to the commission, so I know we'd, we'd love to be kept abreast as things update or if there are any... Uh, if there are any roadblocks that we can help plow through, I think there's the interest uh, on this commission to do that. Um, you know, I'll note, Chief, you, you talked about kind of socializing this among the department. I think that is that is an important step. It, it reminds me a little bit of the what you saw in this department and others. You know, gosh, almost a decade ago when you saw the widespread implementation of body-worn cameras, where there was at first a lot of skepticism, but what you've seen now is unanimously to an officer, every officer I've spoken to is a huge fan of the value add that body-worn cameras provide to their policing, the, the value that they provide to accountability, to making sure that they're able to do their jobs to the best of their ability. So I am hopeful that when we look at modern early intervention systems in the, in the longer lens, a couple years from now, uh, it will look like what we saw with body-worn cameras, where after officers were socialized and understood the value, that they become an, an indispensable tool for policing. So I, I hope to see that. Thank you. So, Commissioner, yeah. I stand corrected. So 3.19 is the EIS-TGO. At this point, I don't, it, it has not been uh, touched in, since 2007. So I'm sure there will be things that come up that might need to be uh, revised in this DGO. It's probably, I don't know where it is on the schedule, but it's due for revision anyway. Okay, we should keep that maybe at, at the top of the commission's and I'll just mind. I'll just chime in that there is actually like a parallel process taking place and Janelle um, with DPA is also participating in that. We just didn't want to put a timeline because there had been some delays with implementation and with developing the actual platform. So um, that is a work in progress. Thank you, Commissioner Inez. And again, thank you for your tremendous leadership on this issue. Thank you, Commissioner Benedicto. And so I do have a couple of questions. Um, there had been a request at some point from DPA to see if the, if the system was capable of sharing information in real time uh, with DPA when it came to certain alerts, uh, internal affairs investigations. Is that... Uh, taking place? No, not to our knowledge. Uh, but it's not a systems question, it's a policy question. Correct. So, so she, uh, oh, sorry. But I would say the way that our platform is designed is, it's not meant to be a gotcha system, right? Not that DPA is a gotcha system, but it's not, it's not meant to be a disciplinary tool, it's meant to be a preventative tool by its design. So it's, it's all about incremental so i'd say from policy perspective our position as a company and as a research organization is this particular tool is most effective at driving behavioral change when 
it's developed from the ground up as supportive, non-punitive uh, way to uh, help those officers who are struggling out there. Got it. And the reason I asked the question, uh, not necessarily to uh, yeah. criticize or try to contribute to changing your, your program model, uh, because it is a policy question, right? And for us, when we see such, you know, uh, important technology finally reach our department, um, it is something that is, becomes useful across the board for our city to benefit from it. Chief, would you have any issues with uh, sharing that information as far as there are certain thresholds that lead to an actionable risk as far as the languages here, right, or an actionable, uh, advisable risk alert. Um, and sometimes those initiate uh, internal affairs investigations that my understanding are, some, are not necessarily always initiated uh, with the knowledge of DPA or with DPA being involved for there to be a parallel investigation um, if in fact there was some type of, um, you know, DPA type of uh, incident uh, as far as there being, you know, non-compliance with a, with a DGO or some type of uh, behavior that's deemed, uh, you know, in need of some type of action as far as disciplinary action is concerned. If I, if I understand your question, I, that would be problematic if information is, if it's a disciplinary complaint that DPA has and there's something, uh, an incident that also triggers an alert, DPA should have access to and will have access to the incident. Um, but the information from the EIS system is not meant to be used as disciplinary unless the investigation uncovers that there's discipline involved. So I don't know if I answered your question, but the answer is if there is something that triggers an alert that DPA is, you know, has the jurisdiction for, they would get that information. But the data from an alert being triggered just on the surface, I don't think that is that is what this system is not what this system is designed to do. So the way I sense. understand the system, once an alert is uh, leading to what is the actual language here? A actionable alert. Yeah, there's there's. I, there's actionable alert and advisable alert and minimal risk. Minimal risk obviously doesn't issue anything. Uh, actionable alert is the system saying that there's a strong pattern that needs review. And I think the chief's point on a human has to look at it. Uh, we've got police experience, actionable. Advisable suggests, hey, the pattern's going in the wrong way. And so someone needs to look at it, but it doesn't necessarily rise to the level of actionable. But the system itself isn't using any new information. So any investigative information such as an allegation or other data that's feeding it is already in the system. It's already there, right? There's not, it, it's just using existing data or existing outcomes of investigations, for example. Um, but it's not it, uh, just to help identify to say, hey, someone needs extra support or training or intervention, right? But it's not there's no investigation from our alert, right? It's not, there's no independent, uh, there's no independent investigation other than the, the identification of a pattern that says that officer may need some incremental support. And so when that alert 
reaches the supervisor, I know that there's like a risk uh, management team that will send that alert to the supervisor. Then it's up to that supervisor to determine whether that actionable alert will actually lead to a performance improvement plan or a disciplinary action, correct? In this, so let me speak about this in general outside of the SF uh, purview because we don't speak policy for anyone. So I'll talk about it nationally. And just to give you a sense, we, we just came off last week. Um, we had uh, a national summit uh, talking about this very issue across the country. So, and we, we're very lucky that we serve everyone from uh, very different jurisdictions, Dallas, Charlotte, Nashville, New York City, NYPD, uh, Baltimore and the DOJ just, DOJ just brought us on for uh, Baltimore's consent decree. So we're, we, we've got a lot of experience in lots of jurisdictions um, around this particular work. And there are two general models that, that, have, that have grown from the work. Okay. The original model is that it would get pushed down to the immediate chain of command, let's say a sergeant and a lieutenant, in, in the, immediate, the immediate supervisors of the officer. Okay. What we've generally learned about that model is it generally failed. And it generally failed because when it would go to the unit, I'm talking about nationally, there would be little to no action. It would, it would get dismissed, right? Someone would look at it and say, oh, this, this is fine. Uh, and it would be very hard to get action to occur. The second model, which is a centralized risk management model, which is it's only centrally managed, right? And we just had a major uh, city that did that and then undid it. Uh, the challenge was is that the folks who lived in, this, in the risk management bureau equivalent would say, hey, this officer on paper needs intervention, right? But I've never, I've never met Nick, so how am I supposed to evaluate Nick? Because I've never been on a call with him and I've never been with him. And so that model struggled. So the ideal model that we have, um, and it, we, we have a model policy that we publish, is a hybrid model which it comes into a central risk bureau-like organization, okay? They review it, and then they partner with the local chain of command collectively to determine the right course of action to help get that officer back on track. Uh, and it's that marriage of the, of the involvement of the immediate supervisors on the street with the central uh, risk management together is what really makes it powerful and where we've seen the most behavioral change to the positive. I hope that answers your question, Commissioner, or gives you... It, it answers how your system works, for sure. Yes. And the question is back to the chief. If at that point uh, that supervisor determines this pattern of behavior merits some form of discipline or activates an internal affairs investigation, can that trigger be shared so that in real time we have a parallel investigation which is what dpa is charter amended to do well i i don't believe that is the case or should be the case dpa uh, investigates complaints from members of the community so let's say there let's say the pattern is excessive force and the officer has you know four excessive forces but there's no complaint from an individual. And the excessive forces are uh, all deemed to be within the, the, the San Francisco Police Department's policy. That, that trigger would not right. yield necessarily, would, that would not yield discipline. But let, let's say 
one of those actually was out of policy. If, if I hear you correctly, mm -hmm. you're saying that information should be shared to DPA absent some DPA complaint is the question. Correct. Yeah, I don't think that's appropriate. DPA uh, it, it, Director Henderson, well, I, well, just let me say would this. there be a benefit? If, if, <laughs> if DPA has a relevant investigation, they will get the discipline history of the officer uh, if they have an investigation that's connected to this. But the idea of just, I mean, that, that's not, the idea that every time internal affairs uh, sustains a complaint, that that information gets flagged by DPA. I mean, that's basically what it, this would be. I, I don't see the relevance and I don't see where that's appropriate. If it's a DPA investigation that's connected to this and there's a, there's a, a connection where that information is relevant to their investigation, absolutely. But just on the surface of every time a case that, or a situation where a pattern of conduct is being investigated, and let's say for whatever the circumstances are, it turns into a disciplinary situation, there needs to be some connection, in my opinion, to an actual DPA investigation. Director Henderson. Okay, so two points. One, uh, the information that's being collected and analyzed and disseminated can be helpful uh, in terms of our practices, separate from a gotcha and separate from discipline, which are still relevant, uh, but is absolutely relevant to some of our policy conversations, legislative conversations, and the mediation practices that we have, but the bigger issue and the ultimate issue that I think is the key here uh, is rather than notification from the information being disseminated to us in real time, and this is what the conversations have been with Benchmark and I think with the department as well, have been asking for a portal of access to the information for concurrent cases, not to create new jurisdiction, but where there's concurrent jurisdiction and open cases or from the DPAs, open investigations, if there's shared information about concurrent cases that are going on from internal affairs and or from items or information that's been flagged from benchmark to have access to that information. That's what we don't currently have access to. That's what I believe we're trying to work towards. Does that he make sense? framed it so much better than I did. Well, it sounds like we're saying either the same or similar things, I, I believe. <laughs> so. right, I'll just add a national perspective. We don't have a single, we, we work with 200 agencies and seven statewide contracts. And I just give that for context. And every jurisdiction is obviously needs to determine its own outcome, but we don't have a single one where this is disciplinary based or leads to anything to do with discipline because it undermines the it undermines the buy-in from officers uh, and from supervisors who we need who ultimately will make or break a system, right? They're either going to take action or they're not. And when we get them to take action, it's because they uh, they feel it's safe to engage officers to say, hey, this is not right. I got I to gotta help you be better at this difficult craft of policing, or we need to support you in different ways that live outside a disciplinary track, right? That is a, that is a supportive angle. And so just for context, uh, every other jurisdiction that has done this or we've studied or we've worked with has ended up in that framework for uh, the EIS program that we provide. Great, thank you for that. Um, and I guess, in there is one of the, the questions that I have for our current uh, department chief. Um, this system, I think, relies on fidelity to a model that requires 
documenting <coughs> discipline. And I feel, I know I sound like a broken record every time there's a report, a quarterly report provided where I see that there is one in performance improvement plan for the whole department. What are we gonna do to shift the culture of our department to actually, when there is an advisable or actionable, you know, risk recommendation alert for those supervisors to actually put things in writing in a performance improvement plan that can then be revisited to ensure that what we are hoping for, the prevention of an incident is actually taking place? Um, well, things are, are put in writing and perform. I just read one today, you know, performance improvement plan where it was, everything was in writing, including whether that performance was, was improving. So the things are put in writing. I, I think, I believe what I'm hearing your question is, are we taking the appropriate action when we have something that's actionable? I believe is your question. So the, the performance improvement plan is one way to, to, to get at that. If let's say uh, an alert is triggered, the review is done like it's supposed to, and the support is, hey, this officer needs to be on a performance improvement plan. They're, they're overdriving. Uh, they hadn't gotten in an accident, they hadn't killed anybody, but we know they're overdriving because of whatever, you know, the alert. They are uh, not talking to people the right way, and maybe that's the reason that their force threshold is high. The forces may all be in policy, but the real reason is because the officer's not talking to people the right way, and you know, that's causing some of the issues. Those are things that I've seen in performance improvement plans that's been documented. The question, I believe your question is, how do we determine whether the performance is improving, right? Well, and, it's both. And, and, yeah, so one, one, of it, one of the things is when you stop seeing, let's say that the example I gave with force, you see a reduction in the use of force. Um, you, you, you have a, a, a reason to review body-worn camera and see that the person is actually treating people with the dignity and respect that we expect them to. So there are measures out there, um, and if those things aren't happening and the force continues, then we have to go to another measure. It may be reassignment. It may be, uh, and that's happened before. So there are there are there are think concrete steps that have been taken with performance improvement plans. So I, I just want to say that because this will still be a part of at least the support that we can give officers when they trigger an alert and. If it's you know, a discipline case that triggers the alert, that discipline case will be investigated and whatever is appropriate will happen there as well. But the officer still may need support, even if the discipline case is, is investigated and sustained and there's whatever the appropriate penalty, it doesn't mean that the officer, you know, that that, that performance improvement plan goes away. Does the benchmark system or, or uh, ongoing support provide uh, development in those areas on how to, you know, c 
create a successful performance improvement plan, how to, you know, gradually work towards improvement in certain areas? Yeah, there's in, built into the, the action plan itself, uh, which there's a screenshot there in the, uh, in the document. It helps uh, supervisors and the risk team first assess what the problem is, right? So what aspects of the data did you look at? And then it allows them to, it provides suggestions around mentoring, coaching, training, um, intervention supports that they can select from as part of building a plan. What's your follow-up timeline going to be? How often are you going to check in with the officer? Uh, and then there's the capability for after, after, um, uh, after action plan follow-up. So for example, some agencies will schedule 30-day journal entries where you have to re report back on what you've been doing relative to the plan. So right, the, the plan itself helps the, the supervisors construct the way of doing that to be supportive to the officers. Great. Thank you. Uh, Director Henderson. Thank you. I, I'll be brief because I made my main point, but I just wanted to respond uh, in part to what uh, Commissioner Yanez was saying. One of the issues that I think you had expressed concern over was what those results will be if they're not shared uh, from DPA. And again, I've raised this issue before, I think if the statistical reporting and data were commensurate, so it's not just DPA, even for example, the things that I report on weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, there is a commensurate report from internal affairs, you would see those things and be able to measure the efficiencies of bringing an agency like Benchmark into the picture. And that was part of the original conversation, justifying the the budget to bring them here and i think that that's a report that leveraging them actually speaks to some of the problems that we repeat frequently here uh, about the lack of resources having benchmark at the table speaks to those lack of resources because the technology will be a tool if we use it effectively so that we have broader transparency and more efficiency in terms of what the data will be because that's what we originally had spoken about was benchmark was going to be and serves as more than a representation of just early intervention systems, but was also a tool to be used and now paid for that's both going to collect, analyze, and disseminate information. So I just want to make sure that we're still talking about the same things and not a narrow framework of just the reaction to the actionable alerts. There's a lot more information that's being shared to and through Benchmark. And as, as long as we have the commitments to be expansive about the, that shared data uh, and the collection of data, I, I think it's a positive thing. So it's, and I know that you guys already have a benchmark or best practices because you're in other jurisdictions, both in terms of what's, what the capabilities are of Benchmark and what you have done, not just with the departments, but with uh, oversight agencies and independent agencies, uh, civilian oversight agencies as well. And you've worked with jurisdictions that have those agencies, yes, in the past? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a whole aggregate statistics piece to the platform as well, right? That there's, I think there's two pieces to it, obviously. There's individual alerts, right, which is at the officer level, but then there's aggregate information that the system provides. Um, which is pretty broad. And maybe what would be helpful when you guys are presenting in the future, if there's a whole separate component, just to speak to the total of what the commission has jurisdiction on or over, if some of those presentations speak to some of those shared data 
analysis or shared data capabilities with the civilian oversight agencies that would probably be helpful and specific and then we wouldn't have this drill down to make sure that we're not forgetting anything that we've built and paid for. All right, Commissioner Walker. Thank you. Thank you for this presentation. Um, I mean, I see this as an incredible personnel tool, you know, that is really going to um, take some time away from in human analysis. And um, I think that I really understand and see the importance of there being a trust factor in what it is. It's really helping managers manage their staff. And um, I mean, I think it's important to see aggregate numbers of how many triggers there were in one given time around certain things and, and compare and see if this is working. Um, and again, I, I wanna, I'm really reluctant about sharing specific data because it does then sort of cross over the line into personnel issues and feeling punitive and, you know, it just, it's gonna kind of defeat the purpose of having it. So um, I, I really understand that. And I really, I love this because I think it's really gonna be helpful. So, yeah. All right, thank you both so much for the presentation. Thank you, Commissioner Yanez, for your leadership on this. Uh, Sergeant, could we go to public comment? Great, right, thank you. Thank you. Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item eight, the benchmark presentation, please approach the podium. There is no public comment. Line item nine, discussion on collaborative reform initiative, quarterly update, second quarter, 2023, discussion. Good afternoon, or good evening, Commissioners, uh, Vice President uh, Carter Overstone, Chief Director Henderson, I'm Catherine McGuire, Executive Director of the Strategic Management Bureau. Um, we weren't expecting to present tonight, necessarily, but, uh, but we do have, um, I mean, meaning our unit, uh, but we do have Deborah Kirby here from Jensen Hughes, who is our um, contracted consultant that is doing the monitoring um, and providing monitoring on behalf of Cal DOJ, who is doing the oversight piece of our collaborative reform. So with that, I'll hand it over to her. Good afternoon. As I pull up my PowerPoint, my name is Deborah Kirby. I work for Jensen Hughes. Good evening. Um, my name is Deborah Kirby. I work for Jensen Hughes. I've been asked to provide a brief overview of where we are in the Collaborative Reform Initiative, and then also to be available for any questions or concerns we may have at this time of the, um, the process. Next slide, please. So in um, 2016, the U.S. Department of Justice came into San Francisco at the request of the then mayor and chief of police. Um, to look at issues within the, within the city and within the department following um, some highly publicized officer-involved shootings, uh, the last of which was Mario Woods. 
our team conducted that initial investigation and we came forward with a series of recommendations, uh, 272 in all, um, that were focused on five strategic reform initiatives. You just heard a presentation here that identified that there are concerns that are consistent across policing agencies in the United States, and the concerns and the objectives that we identified here were consistent, right? So use of force, bias in policing, community-oriented policing, how the organization holds itself to account, as well as how it hires and retains personnel, all issues that I've heard discussed here tonight and I have heard throughout the years here in San Francisco. Next slide, please. So, so we published our final report under phase three in February of 2022. At that time, the department had accomplished almost 90% of the overall goals, the objectives of the recommendations at that time. Um, our report in the final three identified what were some of the areas and some of the concerns going forward. Um, at that time, what had occurred was that the department negotiated through and with uh, the California Department of Justice to go into what we call th phase three plus. And the goal of this program or this phase of collaborative reform was intended to help transition the department from a you know, traditional monitor oversight role of some outside agency to one where they can self-sustain and identify not only what are their organizational goals, but how do they want to go forward in the transformation. So consistent with that, what we wound up doing, if you go to the next slide, please, um, is that the focus here began in September of 2022. There are five project plans aligned with each of the strategic recommendations, with the exception of personnel, although that plays into one of the plans, um, with the goal of coalescing the recommendations in the way that they were originally envisioned, that they came in under strategic areas and they were necessarily linked to help the organization build iterative practices that help them to achieve the goal outcomes. And so under these five project plans, um, the department engaged and agreed with the California Department of Justice on, to a, on a timeline that's rather aggressive that ends in April of 2024. Our contract with this project extends to allow for final review and an assessment. It's no surprise here, but we know that there are always um, end of game or end of project uh, issues and resolutions between the various stakeholders. And so that time expansion will allow us to deliver a consistent report that reflects all of the input of the stakeholders. There's also a portion in this phase that allows for sustainability review. And so what that means is that of the recommendations that were awarded substantial compliance by the California Department of Justice, we will dip sample and review a percentage of those. Right now it's about 10%. Um, and weighted in terms of their priority and their prominence in terms of the reform occurring here in San Francisco. So some of these were awarded early on. The work on use of force was significant. The department was identified as having a leading policy in 2016. Um, since that time, you know, there's been additional work occurring. And so looking at that and saying, you know, is the organization capable of maintaining a level of transformation and accountability to what it's promised to do? Um, further, what we're looking at next stage um, is that the independent monitoring review will assess not only the work done on the recommendations, but also the organizational structure as it can go forward in you know what we call um, to infinity and beyond, right? Because um, police issues are iterative; they they grow, they continue every day. And the question is: Is there the organizational framework and capacity to address these issues in a way that is consistent, transparent, 
focused on community service, and allows the department to demonstrate that it is following its policies and guidelines. Next one. So when we talk about the project plans, um, there are basically two addressing use of force, right? And in 2016, this department had a significant issue with data. Um, even though there are complaints about where the data is today, it has significantly advanced since that time. Um, and what you just heard was a presentation by an organization that's coming in to help the department coalesce its disparate data systems into what ideally will be a manage management dashboard. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But what the use of force aspect of this is, is really to be able to start to measure, analyze, and report consistently on the force that officers are using. Um, there's the sustainability aspect of that in terms of looking at what's going on around use of force. And then also review of what the practices are and the policy practices of this organization. I need to note that you know, the 2016, uh, 2017, they, the department achieved substantial compliance based on its policy 5.01. Since that time, it's gone under subsequent review and revision of the department's own accord. And frankly, the disengagement policy that they've recently published is probably a nationally innovative uh, policy and one that we don't see happening in other jurisdictions. So that's a positive outcome, right? The other thing that we've noticed, and we were just here last week on a site visit as part of the work under Phase 3 Plus, was that you're seeing the training um, division, specifically the field tactics unit, taking the recent officer-involved shootings and looking at and breaking down what's happening relative to the video, the data, the evidence, and identifying whether or not there are ways that training can help the department overcome a force situation or improve the outcomes of a force situation. So that's truly innovative and impressive work that the department continues to do around use of force. Uh, next slide, please. Um, project plans three and four really are the ones I think have the most interest. In part, um, what we're talking about under uh, project three is advancing the community policing practices of the organization. Um, this thing called COVID really put the end of phase three um, a little bit off of the rails. Um, the department did a good job in terms of trying to maintain community outreach at a time when it was not necessarily feasible. But this phase is intended to allow the department to identify and define what its structures are for community engagement to demonstrate that they have the capacity and the willingness to do so and that they can take forward um, the early work of the stakeholders in collaborative reform and push that into a process that will allow them, the stakeholders, and the department to work together. Uh, Project Plan 4 is probably the more interesting one um, and definitely intriguing in terms of what the department is trying to do in terms of identifying um, bias and being able to assess and address whether or not there are bias practices and what does that look like in San Francisco. You just heard the presentation of the vendor who will be working on that system, um, and that is directly linked to some of the outcomes in terms of the recommendations. And so what we're seeing within the department is that not only are they looking at this concept of bias, but as you heard here today, really looking to develop a management dashboard that will allow the department to identify, assess, what officers are doing, but also make it transparent to officers in terms of their performance and what they're doing. And then allow for the opportunity for managers, leaders to have real-time data to assess, are there variations, are there issues, are there things that I should manage? Um, because the concept of management within law enforcement is not one that is um, 
widely inbred. Um, law enforcement's really focused on discipline because generally officers arise through a system of collective bargaining and they understand that. Um, so the ability to have this data and move it forward, I think really will put the department on a national best practice standard. And then finally, the fifth project plan, which isn't addressed here, um, is really about the department looking at its um, internal, internal affairs data and how, again, how they look at discipline and what does discipline mean within the department, and frankly, whether or not there's disparity in discipline practices. And so these five project plans together, you can go to the next slide, are really what is going to bring the department, I think, into a wrap-up of uh, what collaborative reform is about, but also allow the department to demonstrate what its commitment is to the community forward. Now, that being said, um, you know, there are challenges and issues for every plan, right? So I've discussed the promising, right, the management dashboard, but the one issue that I think is imperative to understand is that in 2016 when we came here, the department was really in a reactionary mode and wasn't necessarily inclined to look at practices that were identified as not being appropriate. Um, what you see in this department today is one that is learning focused and really at iterative improvement. And so you have commanders now, you have deputy chiefs, you have chiefs who were leads on the development of the projects and the recommendations in the early days. And so that allows the department to operationalize it. Um, Challenges. All right, so resourcing. So we're hearing discussions today about who's addressing narcotics and who's doing this. Um, sometimes the actions of data collection analysis, um, getting reports, dip sampling, and audits are not seen with the same fervor um, that having police on the street are. And so in a self-driven reform program, which is what San Francisco has and is unique nationally to any agency that I'm aware of, um, resourcing continues to be a challenge because there's not a judge, there's not some lawsuit that's forcing behaviors. Um, IT completion. Um, timelines on IT projects are always uh, notorious for um, delays, uh, but also that can the IT plan deliver what is anticipated and um, is expected by the department. Uh, the timeline is a challenge. Uh, we have until April of 2024 for a completion, and there are pressures that will come up against that part of which are resourcing in IT, um, but it will also continue to go. And then we continue to hear some discussions around policy development. It was an issue in the original report. We're not deep enough in the woods right now, but you know the revisions of 3.01, the policies that we've seen promulgated, um, have shown that the department is able to work within the system, but just to make sure that there aren't any um, backslides in terms of any of the policy applications. We haven't seen it yet, but that will be part of this process. Next slide, please. Back one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so the one thing I do want to say, and I've said it, is that San Francisco is a unique department in that it voluntarily, although somewhat less so, right, undertook a reform approach. When the USDOJ exited this situation in 2017, the department in the city could have stepped away, right? But they elected to continue to move forward with the reform initiatives. And so that is something to be commended. You've had California Department of Justice as the oversight partner for a period of time. Um, and you've also got organizational investment in this program. I've talked to people recently, like I said last week, we work with the teams, we work the project plans. The goal and the focus of how to improve is present and visible. And so this is not going to be easy. There's 1,400 officers out there. Each one can make a decision at any time. And we're answering questions and issues regarding that officer. 
But if that structure is there, if that stakeholder engagement and the transparency remains, this department is well positioned to be successful in the future. And so um, for me, that's a positive end to um, this presentation and frankly to several years worth of work. So I'm here now to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Ms. Kirby, for the presentation and uh, Director McGuire for being on hand. Um, a couple questions for me. Um, we've recently discussed, we discussed a little bit today, but at the last meeting we'd, we fully agendized uh, the issue of the department's auditing of its stop data. Um, and we, we discovered that in essence, the department isn't auditing its, its stop data, not, not any audit that would catch anything that would call into question the integrity of the data. Um, auditing of stop data is something that the COPS report comes out and says is very important, it specifically recommends engaging um, a third party like a university. And I think the words it used were that kind of like the bare minimum is to get an independent outside partner, that that's considered best practice. Um, we're obviously not doing that. Uh, where, where do you see where we are now on auditing of stop data? And, and do you have a does Jensen Hughes have a, a view on what steps we can be taking to? You know, the commission's going to be actively considering this. So I'm just curious if Jensen Hughes has a view on kind of what direction we might consider going in. Yeah, so there's good and bad news here, right? Um, the submission of RIPA data, the stop data, for how many years hasn't been basically audited by most agencies who are engaged in it. Shocking to me, um, I come from a state where uh, that was audited. So, um, so I think it is a problem um, throughout California. I also believe that with the work that's being done currently in terms of the um, management dashboard, the ability to link um, the various databases will help inform. But our original um, investigation review assessment identified that there were significant issues, and I don't know that there's been strength um, placed in developing those, you know, those standards. Now, there's challenges here, too, right? So what type of organization comes in, and how do they do that? And frankly, whether or not the department is in a position to be able to continue and maintain um, a level of audit. We've talked to stakeholders to this process. Um, short answer, it continues to be a challenge. It's not one that I see a near-term solution to, but it is one that is part of the closeout of this project. We've been having conversations. There have been some outside agencies brought in to look at various aspects of the data, as you're aware, but as it relates specifically to stop data, um, I think that continues to be a challenge for the department and one that we'll be working with them. Great, thank you for that. Um, I think it was last, week or maybe it was or last meeting or maybe it was a couple meetings ago, I, I asked the chief if um, he would be amenable to putting on our website all bureau orders, um, bulletins, um, maybe some department notices, but, but putting up all significant policies that are not department general order, uh, general orders. Um, I'm looking at my notes, I think at page 149 of the DOJ report that was called out as kind of, again, something that was basic best practices. The, the chief's response was that uh, wasn't prepared to commit to doing that um, and cited staffing issues. Uh, I'm just curious if, you know, Jensen Hughes has a view about 
the necessity for you know transparency around all all policies um, that govern um, how officers in the field carry out their duties. Right. So I think the issue that we saw first on um, was that department notices were being used to circumvent the DGO process, right? And so that's why it was called out initially because it was unique and frankly probably countermanded the goal of the process established to the DGOs. When you get down to bureau orders, unit orders, um, when you look at a large law enforcement organization, there are multiple orders and the ability to keep those um, aligned and consistent with the change in policy. You were just speaking about a policy that hasn't been revised since 1999. Um, I came from the Chicago Police Department. I'd go into units where I was commanding. I'd be like, when was the last time somebody touched this book? So I think there, there's two things here, right? Is that the department has committed to transparency around its DGOs that's consistent, right? But to be able to build a process internally where they're able to maintain those standards becomes part of, I think, you know, transformation and beyond. Is that what are those auditing? And, and when I say audit, it means something different here because of Los Angeles, so I'll use Paul's term of review. Um, what are the review practices around the update of unit policies? And I think there's several things that you have to focus on initially because it is iterative. What are your risk issues, right? You know, are you do you have different use of force policies? I'd be looking at SWAT, right? Um, do you, you know, what are your positions around stop? What data are you maintaining that's PII? And is there anything that's not consistent with the current organizational um, rubric? So the, the long-term answer here is, is that I don't know that it would be helpful to put every unit order, um, division order, up on the, the site, but I do think that the organization itself needs to be able to establish a rubric under which those policies are reviewed, are consistent with the practices, and where they impact community concern, there should be transparency to them. Great, thank you. Yeah, you, you spoke primarily to, to policy revision, and I do wanna ask you about that as well. But just to this issue of transparency, is, is, there, is there any reason why we shouldn't, for example, post publicly every bureau order? Um, is, is that not what the COPS report directs us to do as a, well, as a rec recommends that we do as a best practice? Yeah, and I can't answer what is contained in the unit orders now because that's- No, no, I'm sorry, just bureau orders. Bureau orders, yeah, yeah I, I don't even know what's in the bureau orders, but to my understanding, there shouldn't be anything that's inconsistent. Um, you know, there's always a concern about whether it directs a specific tactical action, but I don't think that would exist at the bureau level. But I can't speak to that, but conceivably, there should be transparency to the orders. Great, thank you. Um, on this larger policy issue that, that you raised, um, does Jensen Hughes have a view on kind of what best practices are in terms of policymaking? I think, you know, we, we've talked about this commission, the need to revisit DGO 3.01, which sets out our policy revision practices. Um, and I think many stakeholders, perhaps for different reasons, also, you know, agree that revision of 3.01 would be appropriate. From my perspective, We've had recently the issue that you flagged, the department using bureau orders improperly to uh, circumvent the DGO making process. Uh, we just They just issued two bureau orders that clearly should have been DGOs. Um, in one case, it directly uh, conflicted with an existing DGO, and in the other case, uh, a DGO revision was well underway, and the department front ran that and just issued its own bureau order. We've had deputy chiefs, uh, 
blowing deadlines under 3.01 and not even taking the time to request for an extension of time. So we just lose track of, of policies and, and where they are in the process. Um, and we've had some new, very innovative interpretations of 3.01 um, from the department's policy unit, uh, claiming, for example, that 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 DGO affords them unlimited time now to revise a DGO, uh, despite setting out strict time limits. So that that's those are some of the issues from from my perspective. Certainly, the the, the bureau order issue is spoken to directly many many times in the cops report. I'm just wondering in Jensen's Hughes practices or experience whether. Uh, you have recommendations about how to make our policy revision process work better. Yes, yeah, so you're raising issues that I'm hearing anecdotally, and so we really haven't had a chance to look at what is the current status of what's going around the policy review. Um, I think that there's a couple things in play here, right? Is that you know policies are meant to guide the actions of police officers, and sometimes. Um, those requirements require some sort of swift intervention. Um, you know, if something's deemed illegal, if something occurs, that the department knows that it needs to switch. It has to have the flexibility to do that. However, when it comes to those community-facing concerns, what is the measure that's in place to hold the department to account to ensure that there is then a public view, approval, and you know, implementation of those policy requirements? And so that truly, it, San Francisco is a good practice in a lot of ways in terms of its community involvement. I mean, that is something that is you know, continuing to be um, progressed across the country right now. But you also face a challenge in California that's a little bit unique, is that most agencies are lexical, right? And so this concept of policy and how to build policy and how to actually manage policy um, remains a challenge for a lot of these agencies coming out of lexical practices. And in San Francisco, um, you know, it is a major city, right? And so the size of the bureau and what are the specific needs of the bureau, how do those drive those policies? So it's this concept of community-facing issues and then, frankly, how do you get operationally what you need to get done and where do those two intersect? And in some regard, um, this idea of time, you know, it, it, it goes to both ways and how does that get done? And so, to me, 3.01 was developed by this group with a goal of you know, improving policy development, but it has some tweaking, it seems, because we hear comments um, from various stakeholders regarding that. So it's best practice. We're working on that. Um, I can't tell you that there's one solution. San Francisco is unique, um, and we're trying to work for that solution. And, and one other thing on this on this issue of policymaking, um, one thing about 3.01 is it gives a lot, you know, department leadership get a lot of input throughout the process, but it, there's no built-in requirement that the commission consult uh, and solicit actively the thoughts and feedback of line-level officers who will actually be charged with implementing uh, the policy. Do, do you see other jurisdictions um, engaging and involving officers more, uh, soliciting feedback and, and when, when revising policy? It depends upon the policy, right? So, and it also depends upon the agency. So there's a lot of policies where they have the SMEs, which are the officers actually doing the work in some circumstances that review and inform the policy. And that's a practice, like a policy working group that has various levels of officers working on a policy. Um, there's also ways that, you know, I have agencies that are using a system similar to the department 
and how they send out orders, that they send out notice to officers to make comment, and that those comments then are received and evaluated by the, the policy unit. And so there's ways to expand the visibility and the input of officers um, to the policy process, and um, other agencies are doing that. Great. Last question for me. Uh, you, you aptly described uh, a period of time that you refer to as infinity and beyond. And uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, what, what does that look like concretely once Jensen Hughes moves on to its other more important work in Cal DOJ, uh, that, that MOU expires? Who is, or it, maybe it's just the folks up here, um, but what do you envision as the process for ensuring that we maintain compliance with what we've uh, already reached, that we are meeting compliance for the outstanding recommendations and that we don't backslide on recommendations that we, that we have completed? Yeah, so uh, there's one thing that I just really want to put out here right now is that this is a significantly different department and, frankly, process than what we saw in 2016. And so it's been iterative. And sometimes when you're sitting in the chairs, you don't see that. But coming back from you know, where we were in 2016 to where we are today, I think that there's a lot of good here in this organization, this city, um, and in its stakeholders that should be recognized. I think that you know, and beyond really addresses the issue that you're raising. Can these stakeholders work collaboratively to address the real issues and concerns? Because you may disagree but you all believe in the process, you believe in this department, you believe in this city, and so all, each of you need to work in that. I am by no means Pollyanna, but I do believe that the ability to create an operational framework that looks at, one, you know, what's going on with the stakeholders, what do we need to do, and three, how do we improve it, is key to ongoing success. There's always going to be some issue that's the nature of policing. It's the nature, nature of where we are um, in terms of crime, right? But the ability to apply the principles of, you know, for the community, by the community, and are we doing the thing that we want to do under our own goals, um, I think are critical to continued um, success. And that's why it's important to recognize that this is more or less self-driven. This, this city, this department asked for this, and this is where it is. And so when you know, when I say when dad's out of the room, um, how this city and how this department goes forward, I think the framework is here now. And, and it's important because a lot of officers, a lot of lower level supervisors have been exposed to this program. They've grown up in, you know, in the department owning it, and they're now at places to make this continue to go on. Now, there's always going to be challenges, but it's how you address it. And I think that that framework has been instilled in this organization. Now, we're working on it under 3-plus to make sure that it's uh, fully there, but um, there's hope there. Great. Thank you for that. Commissioner Benedicto. <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Vice President, and thank you, um, Ms. Kirby, for that presentation um, and for the continued commitment of, of Jensen Hughes to this work. I wanted to ask, uh, most of my questions are uh, focused around the sustainability review for already completed recommendations. Uh, the, the dip sample, would this process allow, as part of that review, if there were, if there were backsliding observed, would that include Jensen Hughes changing the designation from substantially in completion to, to something else, or would it, would it just, like, what would that look like if you, if, if in one of the recommendations you saw uh, right. some so backsliding? The, the AG has final authority on saying whether or not this department has 
um, been seen in substantial compliance. And so the award was at a point in time, right? And so now the goal is to say, is the, is the department maintaining those goals that were identified and um, awarded at that time? If they're not, um, there'll be a conversation between the department, the Cal DOJ, and frankly, a framework of discussion as to what that looks like, whether or not it might be a mediation plan or you know some aspect of that regard. Um, don't necessarily walk back the initial award, but we can identify what that framework is now and where the department may be deficient, and then identify what would be the expected outcomes as a result of that. That makes sense. So, so since the award is a snapshot in time, it wouldn't change that award, but the AG could note that a snapshot in time now would no longer find it in substantial compliance, right. is what you're saying. Right. So like if, for example, you know, like take use of force, it would be uh, I, I totally unlike the hypothetical, but if this commission suddenly decided we wanted to unanimously revert to the 1995 version, and, and you know, obviously the, the award was because that version was, was superseded, that the, the, the DOJ would be able to note that in, in the report that comes at the end of phase three plus? Yeah, and it also, and you just raised an issue there too, is if there was a significant deviation from what was deemed as a successful outcome, you know, if you look at the overarching five areas, if like the department completely walked away from its use of force goals, um, I, w I would anticipate that there would be more than a discussion around mediation. I would as well, okay, wonderful. Have, so the, the dip sample will be about 10% of the recommendation, so that's about, is, is that right you said? Yeah, we're, we're looking at about 35 right now, that's about what we'll be looking at. Have the 35 specific recommendations that will be part of the dip sample been identified by Jensen Hughes, or is that, is that still in Not process? at this time, we, uh, last week, that's why we were here, we, we're looking at some waiting, obviously, Certain areas will be of more interest than others in terms of, so, so you've got a couple, you've got some distinct issues here. You have several that were done very early on, all the work around use of force, and then you had a, you know, several recommendations that came in at the end of uh, phase three, so there'll be a little bit of examination on that, and then the rest of it will be distributed through the other um, strategic areas. Is it the case then that it'll be weighted based on that and then randomly selected within that, or will, yes. so it, yeah. it, it's not, the case of the, the, they'll be sort of hand selected. No, right? no, 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 no. There'll be, um, yeah, there'll be some waiting and then random selection. Um, I, a couple might be hand selected based on their prominence or what we're seeing emerge, but for the most part, um, it really is weighted to what, you know, what the issue is and how it's perceived in terms of its overall compliance. And for example, a lot of the work on bias is being done now. So we, we wouldn't weight that as heavily because there's current work happening that will inform the outcome. Understood. Is it the case uh, and not being able, like, would it be possible, uh, you know, we talk a lot about a lot of the recommendations here, if, you know, between the commission, between DPA and the department, if there were a discrete number that we would want hand-selected in the dip sample, would that be something that Jensen Hughes would be in a position if, if to accommodate? If there are concerns about specific recommendations, um, I would ask that you'd forward them to, the, to me. I mean, we're, we're looking, we may agree, you know, we may have already selected those, and so we could, we could adjust that. But clearly, if there are concerns that are being identified, um, by all means, forward them. Okay, I wonder, I wonder if that'd be something that we, we could discuss as a commission along with the chief and, and Director Henderson, because I think that and, might And be, just one clear thing, I, I have to approve any plan with LDOJ, <laughs> but um, it is helpful to recognize if there's areas in particular, and so as we're selecting um, recommendations to review, it'll be helpful. 
I mean, I think one example just off the top of my head is I know we've had extensive discussion about the about the stop data audit recommendation, you know, in, the, in this commission. Uh, and so, but I, th I think it might be helpful uh, to, to, to help to provide that input for, for Cal DOJ's yeah. consideration. And, and on that issue, I mean, it is a problem across California. Of course. Um, a lot of agencies were delivering data without really having that firsthand knowledge of what was being delivered. So it's something that's being worked out and there may be solutions forthcoming from other jurisdictions as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I, I do want to acknowledge uh, something that you had said, and you know, for, for members of the public that are watching that are less well versed on the the, the broad picture here. You know, you, you had this this 2016 report that then was it's been it's been nothing but years of people with the Department of Justice pulling out with COVID delaying a, a lot of the, the the community input stages, but. Um, it, to have had, I know even your entity has changed names, but to have had Jensen Hughes uh, consistently working throughout this process and to have SFPD in the Strategic Management Bureau working consistently on that process, it is uh, a lot of incremental changes that have added up to a lot, and I don't want to understate that when, when we talk about the progress that we all agree still needs to be made. So thank you, Ms. Kirby, and thank you, Director McGuire. Commissioner Walker. This has really been helpful. Um, thank you for being here uh, with the report. Um, certainly, there's always something institutions can do to get better, but it does feel to me in this report that we um, we have a, a uh, we we should be proud of what we're doing with with all of our partners out in the community. Um, I I think that I mean I know it's hard to compare, but it does feel to me like. A lot of the models that we're engaging in are our models across the country. So um, I just want to thank the chief, thank all of our command staff for engaging in this um, and the commission's pressure, which happens a lot. Um, it's, you know, it really, I think our city should be proud of our police department. And a lot of it is because we're engaged in this partnership. So thank you. Yeah, and early on, we identified that the San Francisco police officers were all well-informed, um, many are highly educated, and really had a, a good natural way with the community. And so we continue to see that even today when I was trying to get in here. So uh, that was helpful. <laughs> Great. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Ms. Kirby. Appreciate you staying late with us. Great. Thank you. Oh, oh. oh we had a last-minute addition. I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you uh, very much, sir, uh, Vice President yeah. Cardo. Uh, again, I want to thank uh, you also for all the hard work we're putting this through. Uh, I know this has been a long process. Uh, thank the chief, the commission, and all the members uh, that went through it with this. My, my question is the time. How much time was, you know, for a staff of uh, 1,500 or how many officers we had, what was the time spent on the training? or to bring the, bring the members up to, uh, uh, I guess, to, to the policies and to meet uh, DOJ's requests. And then the second one behind it, I guess it's an annual or continual process. And what, what is that in uh, man hours in a, in a yearly base? Is this, this is my thoughts. Yeah, um, so what I can tell you is that our job wasn't in the weeds, so to speak. Um, part of the success of this program is that, you know, the chief did develop a standalone bureau that helped guide and direct that, right? And so when you're talking about training, I would argue that it continues, it's ongoing. 
and has been significant, right? That's every time there's a switch in use of force um, to meet legal requirements or to meet policy goals, um, that invokes training. Um, the department is also mandated to deliver training through the post, you know, AOT training as they call it. Um, and so the, I guess the good thing for this department is that it's been committed to training. One of the success outcomes, I think, in terms of use of force is this recognition of the connectivity to persons in mental health crisis. And so early on, the department invested in training officers on CAT coming out, also trained all of its supervisors. And so you had an informed response when you were dealing with somebody in mental health crisis. Uh, but that also included changing in dispatch codes. So this, you know, for lack of a better term, wraparound view of what an issue is and what can be done to help improve that um, has been, I think, a significant investment by the department in terms of training. Um, I would argue that you're seeing the value of that investment and the decreased use of force and, frankly, decrease of severity of use of force. Okay. I, I guess um, what I'm looking at is is that additional resource that is needed in the police department that adds to the, like the command staff to have overlooked the, po the policies and the changes? Well, I, I, you're asking my opinion, so I'll give yeah, you my opinion. opinion. Um, I think it's critical. Um, right. so, so the challenge that we see with law enforcement is that there was a disinvestment nationally in training um, and, and frankly here with like, you know, canned policies that organizations fell away from identifying goals and how they wanted officers to behave. And so what you're seeing nationally as a result of certain issues arising out of uh, the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor is a, a reinvestment in what we want our officers to do. And that includes policy, it includes training, it includes field supervision, but it's not organic. There has to be an engine that drives that. And so to be able to do reviews, audits, dip samples, make sure that people are doing what they say they're going to do. Sometimes at that field level, and, and you heard Benchmark talk about that, is that units are focused on what they're dealing with on a day-to-day. -day. The structure that allows people to visually look across the organization and say, does this plate need some you know, help? Is it still spinning? Um, has to rest with somebody for success um, in terms of what we want in our police and what our communities ask of police. And that's true here in San Francisco. Thank you very much. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you for recognizing me, Mr. Vice President. I did have one more question about, about the dip sample, which is I, I know when, when, when these are done in other contexts, depending on what you find, uh, it could potentially be expanded, right? If, if you see irregularities and, you know, when you do these sort of dip samples. Is, is that something that is provisioned for in the way Jensen Hughes envisions this? I, again, I'm, I'm hopeful that it wouldn't be, but if, if you were to do a dip sample and said, oh, of these 35, 17, we felt like there, there were deviations, we have this mediation plan, would that merit an expansion or an additional inquiry? So at this point, the department through the um, Bureau of Strategic Services is, um, I just butchered that, right, um, is currently overseeing the implementation of the recommendations that have always already been substantially compliant. And so, They've got a process by which they're measuring adherence to the requirements. And so it's our anticipation that we're not going to see significant gaps in what the department is doing. You know, might there be something where we're saying, okay, this is not trailing? Might it be, you know, there's possibilities everywhere, right? Because there are 272 recommendations. But um, I don't anticipate a significant gap. 
The process itself doesn't address if there is a significant backslide, what would occur, but I can anticipate um, that there will be um, consequence to any serious backslide. But I honestly, at this point, we don't anticipate that. Um, the recommendations were necessarily interconnected. There were a number of them, but they were iterative and task-based. And so based on what we're seeing in terms of the ongoing compliance review, we anticipate not to see significant issues. Okay, but if, if something unexpected occurred, the AG would could potentially? We would anticipate a significant response, yes. Okay, that's all. Thank you very much for recognizing me again. All right, seeing no names in the queue, thank you again. Uh, and Sergeant, could we go to public comment? Thank you. Members of the public who would like to make public comment regarding line item nine, CRI initiative, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item 10, presentation and discussion of the disciplinary review board findings and recommendations. First quarter 2023 discussion. Good evening, Commissioners, Chief Scott, Director Henderson, members of the public. We are here to present on the recommendations and discussions that were had at the Disciplinary Review Board. As a way of background, this is a board that meets quarterly to address t um, aggregate trends and sustained cases, policy failures, and training failures to try to more nimbly address any issues in real time as they're coming up. All right, so aggregate trends identified by IAD in Q1 of 2023. So, so my apologies to the commission. Uh, I was presented with the quarter two for 2023, so that's what I was prepared for. And then he said quarter one, so I'm gonna slide right into this. Um, so for quarter one, we had conduct on becoming an officer or member, neglect of duty, specifically body-worn camera, and improper search. DPA's trends for the same time frame also included um, neglect of duty, specifically body-worn camera violations, improper search or seizure, inappropriate comments or behavior, and failure to properly investigate. One of the things I want to highlight, and I believe we talked about it the last time we presented, is there is also an ongoing discussion about what actually a trend means. And I like to remind this group when we talk from Disciplinary Review Board, it's not statistically significant, it's more of identifying trends as they're happening. So we might say that the trend is search or seizure. That doesn't mean we've had an overwhelming number of search and seizure cases, it's just that at that moment in time, those are the most prominent cases on our caseload. If I can just add, um, specifically we're looking at information that supports a timely identification of any issues that would warrant updated guidance that would uh, give us change effectiveness or a corrective action at the same time. So that's, that's the core of it. Not so many how many, but what does that lead us to in the information? And so from there, we'll go into policy failure findings identified by IAD. 
Okay, so IAD had three cases closed in first quarter as a result of policy failure. One case has been presented to the third, uh, to the third quarter 2022 DRB meeting and is regarding an incident report not being assigned to the appropriate investigation unit. The second case was presented in the fourth quarter um, DRB meeting and regarding a case where an, a PSA was unclear if they were able to take a specific type of incident report at a district station. Both cases resulted in a recommendation to update the relevant department policy. The third case was regarding an OIS. The case led to several policy recommendations and changes including um, updates to DGO 5.01, 802, and the creation of the FTFO unit and the CMCR training course. DPA had two policy failure findings. The first um, involved plainclothes officers not wearing body-worn camera um, at an incident as at the time that it happened, they were exempt from wearing body-worn cameras. The policy regarding plainclothes officers wearing body-worn cameras um, is currently being updated to address this issue. So it's nice when we kind of see that the cases we're seeing align with the policies that we're developing. So that's um, an, an example of why DRB is working to do what it set out to do. And the second case where we found a policy failure involved an incident where a person in custody was held at the district station for an extended period of time due to the county jail not accepting custodies. Mm -hmm. This is something that we have seen. Uh, the department's aware of it. We get a lot of complaints about it. Um, and so it's really beyond SFPD's control. It's really a sheriff's issue. But I know everybody is working on that, and that is something that we continue to discuss at these meetings. So we had training failures identified by both DPA IND, excuse me, and IAD in quarter one of 2023. There were no IAD cases in the first quarter that resulted in training failure findings. DPA had one case that resulted in a tra training failure as well as a policy failure finding. Officers froze a location pending the issuance of a search warrant, but still entered the location. DPA found the department's training does not provide adequate guidance as to what freezing a location allows for, as well as what constitute exigent circumstances to allow a warrantless search of a location. And again, that speaks to training that's pretty specific, right? So there's general Fourth Amendment training that's happening, and because the laws change so quickly, there are very specific instances where officers need more guidance. And so this is an example of us having those conversations more quickly than what would happen before, where we would finish our whole investigation and then issue the finding, um, as opposed to being able to talk about it more nimbly. Okay, so out of this particular DRB, there was one recommendation, and I am happy to uh, report on what that was, uh, that the department needs to update training regarding Fourth Amendment, specifically around this issue of what actions can or can't be taken when freezing a location to get a warrant. Um, the updated training should also include more guidance on what defines exigent circumstances and what allows officers to make warrantless entry into a premise while they are <coughs> trying to get the warrant. That concludes our presentation. Unless you want to hear quarter two, I'm ready for that one. <laughs> Great, thank you both for the presentation. Um, I, for the first time tonight, I think, I see no names in the queue. Um, You're welcome. Oh, no. I was, just oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to throw my pencil All at right. you. All right, okay. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, thank you so much, uh, Sergeant.
for members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 10 a DRB presentation please approach the podium and see no public comment line item 11 discussion and possible action to adopt revised department general order 3.05 department weapon return panel discussion and possible action So we have our, our subject matter expert here for that one. And let me grab my presentation. Sorry. Nineteen ninety-four was the last revision of this one. Commissioner, I'm going to just be very brief on this. There, there weren't a, a whole lot of changes on this particular policy. Um, there were some some tweaks some to questions. basically update the policy to our current structure in terms of the the, the members that sit on the panel. Um, the, it, when you look through the red line version, which is attached in your agenda, <coughs> most of the changes uh, were wordings and and. Uh, not a whole lot of substantive changes. Um, so if you have any questions, please, I can answer them. I was involved in this conversation, even though we don't have our deputy chief here, but I can answer any questions that you have. Chief, I see no names in the queue, and I just want to say the way you, you jumped into action there was truly, truly laudable <laughs> and, and remarkable. Thank you for the presentation. Um, I, I, will, I will make a, a motion to uh, adopt the uh, the DGO second for members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 11 DGO 3.05 please approach the podium and there is no public comment on the motion Commissioner Walker how do you vote yeah Commissioner Walker is yes Commissioner Benedicto yes Commissioner Benedicto is yes Commissioner Yanez yes Commissioner Yanez is yes Commissioner Yi yes Commissioner Yi is yes and Vice President Carter Overstone yes Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have five yeses. Line item 12, discussion and possible action to approve revised Department General Order 8.04 Critical Incidents Response Team for the department to use in meeting and conferring with the affected bargaining units as required by law. Discussion and possible action. Thank you, Commissioner. We do have uh, Sergeant Art Howard here who is our subject matter expert on this one. Again, it's a, a fairly short two-page DGO, and I'll just open it up for questions. I mean, I think a lot of uh, the work on the critical incident response team on behalf of Behavioral Science Unit is really laudable work. Um, again, not a whole lot of substance, substantive changes, but uh, we do think this policy is, is uh, adequate and in line with what this department is trying to do with our critical incident response team. So if you have any questions, I or Sergeant Howard or both of us can answer. Director Henderson. All right. Uh, so I don't want to take away uh, from any of the substantive work that was here, and I'm excited. This is, I'm happy this is moving forward. Uh, this was identified, though, as a joint response, and that there's some 
stuff going on back and forth as to whether or not what qualifies as joint. I don't want to go into the weeds with all of that, but I do want to say that this is an ongoing issue in terms of working back and forth to the department uh, that both myself and my staff is working with uh, the department on. I've had conversations with the chief. I know my chief of staff has had conversations uh, with the assistant chief back there uh, because we're really want, we're both concerned about preserving uh, our resources in terms of how we move forward and maintaining this DGO process to make sure that it's something that's efficient uh, and timely. Uh, and I'm flagging it now uh, about DPA being in the role of maintaining, challenging, preserving deadlines and accountability within the process that is, I think, is moving towards a new, a different, uh, more collaborative process than what we've been fighting back and forth with. So I just wanted to flag those. Uh, again, I've already had conversations with the chief and we're in conversation about what some of those changes might look like, uh, but I just wanted to flag it uh, with this because this was one of the issues that came up without going into too long or belaboring the point. That's it. Uh, great. Thank you, Director Henderson. And just to clarify what what exactly that means, that means that the, the joint responses listed, the, the, those explanations in the grid listed as joint responses to public comments, you're saying some of those do not actually reflect DPA's response to the public comment. I'm just going to say yes, because I don't want to go into the whole detail of it, but yes, correct. Okay. okay, well, we might have to subpoena you to get the full That's, answer. That'll be for next week. Before the okay. subpoena comes, <clears throat> I'm hopeful that we have a broader solution that doesn't, that doesn't necessitate a subpoena. Subpoena, okay. We'll, st we'll, 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 dry, we'll keep the ink dry for now on the subpoena. Yeah. Okay, uh, seeing no one else in the queue, um, I will make a motion to adopt and... Send to meet and confer subject to our resolution, the number of which I'm forgetting that Commissioner Benedicto drafted, which yeah, the directs the department to negotiate only over those matters um, that are subject to uh, meet and confer. I think it's Second. resolution 2330, but I could be wrong. I'm, I'm sure our staff will correct it. Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 12, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment on the motion. Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have five yeses. Line item 13. Excuse me. Yeah, line item 13. Public comment on all matters pertaining to item 15 below closed session, including public comment on item 14. Vote whether to hold item 15 in closed session. If you would like to make public comment, please approach the podium. Mm -hmm. There is no public comment. Line item 14. Vote on whether to hold item 15 in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.10. Action. Move to go into closed session. Second. All right. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have five yeses, and we are going into public, to closed session.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. Thank you. 
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. Vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item 15 held in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code Section 67.12A, action. Motion to not disclose uh, closed session with the exception of factual updates in item 15C that will be disclosed in the minutes. Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 16, please approach the podium. There is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have five yeses. Line item 17, adjournment. <laughs> 